tonight, the fine young gentlemen go through Bowie's 24th album, Heathen. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've never been inside the hole that is pod like a hole, we welcome you. And what we do here, our stock and trade, is to go through David Bowie's discography, filmography, and everything else that falls between those cracks. But we do it by following the rules of the diamond dice. Eric is the keeper of said dice, who does the rolling of the dice, which tells us where to go. It is quite the journey that we're on. Um, this is Mark, where I'm always joined by my fellow, my fellow trio, the, the big, the, the pyramid, the power, and that would be Eric and Steve. Yes, it's uh, great to be with you guys. It's going to be a fun night. Who knew losing your soul could be so fun? And that's what we're going to discuss tonight. Would a fellow trio be three more people? Shouldn't it be a fellow duo? See, I was uh, I was going along here with uh, trying to think of something as like a fellowship. And it just kind of fell apart. Well, Steve, it's you, Mark, you, me, and then, then Jesus Christ, of course. Exactly. You've got to make room for the Holy Ghost. Fitting for for heathen. I'd say let's let's see here. What are we? Are we halfway through this project yet? Um, through this season, I kind of think so. I think this is our tenth or eleventh episode where we talk about an album proper. Yeah, I feel and like then we've got buffoonery between. I feel like we're nearing the halfway point. Yeah, I think we're 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 hovering right around it. There's technically twenty eight slots on our chart. Um, but not all of those are album propers. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, every every other week I find a way that I suggest we try to pare those down, which I just did, did today. So um, in the spirit of the holiday, if you will. Oh, yes. Anyhow. Speaking of the holidays, uh, did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Did you give thanks? Yes, I went out and I, I went out to the, the heart of Jefferson and uh, Sonora. Uh, again, out in Amador County, and uh, I spent I, I I had a good time with my father-in-law's people. He spends Thanksgiving with, but then the best part was everybody went to bed, and it was just me and uh, and, and Jack Daniels, my two dogs, and listening to this album, followed by uh, Faith Demore's uh, Soul Invictus, at about one in the morning, in a trailer. Well, it rained around me in reading old X-Men comics. It was a perfect way to, to end a Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's a solid album that I've slept on. I mean, it's, it's I've listened to it like a mighty handful of times, and I've always enjoyed every listening. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't yet hold a, a, in the pantheon for me. I mean, it's still fantastic. I mean, come on now. Faith No More. We're talking top quality. It's just one of those things that I don't ever find myself going back to when I'm in the mood for a little FM, FNM, if you get what I'm saying. I could say that revisiting it in depth, and I and I felt the same way you did, where I was like, oh yeah, that new Fade No More album, that was pretty good. Uh, kind of like when we listened to the next day, and we're like, hey, this, you know, when this originally came out, I just kind of was like, oh, a new David Bowie, and then moved on. I think I kind of did the same thing with Fade No More there. I, I suggest you go back and do, a, a, do a, a back-to-back. Listen to it all the way through two times. And you'll uh, you'll dig it. Yeah, we'll do. 
As the doctor ordered, I will take that prescription. What'd you, uh, what'd you do for Thanksgiving? I ate too much, got gas, so basically business as usual. <laughs> <laughs> then I had to work the next day. How about you, Eric? Oh, yeah, just, just, uh, dinner with the in-laws, um... I what I like to do is I like to balance it just right where I'm drinking enough to where I may be tiptoeing on the annoying line, but then I offer to do all of the dishes, all of the dishes. And uh, and I and I think I was always forgiven. So it, it yeah, it worked out. Well, actually, yeah, it's funny that night that uh, Eric and I, uh, we had we were on similar wavelengths as far as imbibing goes and got into some uh, verbal sparring via the text messages and the social networks. And a lot of it, a lot of it hinged on the fact that I am sorry, I've had it. I want people to quit pretending that National Lampoon's Christmas is a, a Christmas movie you should sit down and watch. I think there are many other better Christmas movies besides that damn film, but everyone likes to pretend that it's a top tier Christmas movie. I disagree. Eric thinks that I'm being too hard on it and I should just let people enjoy what they enjoy, even if it's subpar Christmas movies. And if you guys haven't figured it out by now, I take the spirit of Christmas and that holiday very seriously. And I would rather people sit down and watch uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band three times before they sit down and watch National Lampoon's Christmas Carol one time. Christmas Carol. <laughs> now... The thing with Christmas Vacation, the one thing that I will give it, it has a pretty awesome theme song. That Christmas time is here. You know, like, I'm I'm okay with that, and then everything else. It's a mediocre vacation movie in my mind. Nothing tops the first one. And even European Vacation has its moments. Old Rusty going to the old strip club. Uh, finding... Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, but uh, I gotta say... Steve might be right. I've watched that movie probably once a year, maybe even twice a year around the old Christmas time. And I gotta say, it's just, it's fine. It's a fine, it's okay movie, but it definitely, people in today's day and age treat it as if it was, you know, for crying out loud, Scrooged or something. Now that's Mm -hmm, a top tier Christmas film. They might both share Murray's, but that's about all they share. (laughs) And it's no... It's not. It doesn't even hold a candle to such things as, like, say, uh, Home Alone, which is streaming now on Disney Plus, starring the Irishman's Joe Pesci. Yeah, I need to. Uh, I need to settle into that one. I I know that I'm late on the train. I know it's uh, cousin Fury and Fire on the old uh, interwebs about how great it is. An old Marty Scorsese. Um, you know, top of his game. He's he's doing what he does best, and that's being in directing movies with the old De Niro, Pacino, Pesci, Romano. Two things there. This is actually the first time Pacino's in one of his movies, and also Ray Romano. He continues to actually be a good character actor. It's bizarre to me, but he is. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Yeah. Everybody right. loves him. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually not crazy about uh, National Lampoon's uh, crucifixion. I didn't get a chance to chime in. 
However, I feel feel like it's pretty unoffensive compared to a lot of the garbage that's out there. Um, but I more suspect that um, every year Steve finds himself slowly transforming into Cousin Eddie, and that makes him very uncomfortable. I think that <laughs> that might be why he hates the film so much. Well, you know. You, you, every year you slowly transform to that guy that lives next door with Elaine Bennis. So, you know. You know. <laughs> oh, the, yupp- so. the yuppies, yeah. <laughs> Me and Jen do make that joke that that is probably going to be us. If we didn't have kids, <laughs> that would have been us. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I just want to see with a ponytail, Mark. It's time. It's time. I, I think it's time. Bring it back. You know, the old pirate shirt. <laughs> all, all that... All those shenanigans aside, we're here to talk about. This podcast is about uh, David Bowie, and sometimes this podcast is about Nine Inch Nails. And I do believe that uh, I was checking the wire today, and there is some uh, Nine Inch news. Uh, Eric, tell us all about it. Yeah, it's just the the further he's he's rolling out these Watchmen scores, the Trent and Atticus Watchmen scores. Uh, yeah, the second one just dropped yesterday, well uh, earlier this week, and the next one's gonna drop next month. Um, and if you've been enjoying that ride, it's a lot of great moments. Uh, and I love how he's titling them; that you can totally know what part of the movie that song is. The song is from. There's some great ones on the new score and. Steve, you said it when we recorded. I would love to hear Trent do some jazz. He there's like three, four jazz songs off this, all from the um, episode six, the uh, nostalgia episode. Yes, there there is. There's a, one of them I snuck into that episode we put out last week. It's called like Rabbit Finds a Mouse or something. But then there's uh, there's two others. And by the way, that last episode of the TV show, my goodness, it almost makes me wish that we did do a weekly Watchmen podcast. We're not going to, but. Uh, the history of Hooded Justice, which went back and retroactively affected the comic book, but at the same time did not change a thing of the comic book, was phenomenally done, if you will. Yeah. That was quite an episode. That was something else, man. Uh, there is something special going on in that show. Uh, now I want to go back when I was very confused and not quite sold on episode one, the pilot episode. Uh, there's something special going on with this series, and I really hope that it does create a cultural phenomenon um, that uh, I hope it to be. But time will tell. Um, yeah, and then so we also dropped the Waves score for the film The Waves. Um, it's not on any of the streaming services, but you can order the MP3s off the nin.com website. I And for that very reason, I couldn't tell you if they're worth a damn or not. One can only assume they are. That movie is getting some critical acclaim. I do not know much about it. It kind of snuck out there on me. Yeah, no, I'm definitely interested in checking it out also. It's supposed to be quite a pretty good experience. I would like to remind everyone of the Stargazing, a Bowie tribute show in Sacramento, California, 
Friday, January 10th, uh, 2020. That's next year. That's a night celebrating the music of David Bowie, featuring a full album performance of the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust. It's uh, put on by the Tipsy Orchestrina, and there are some other artists that will be playing as well. And, uh, you know, Eric and I might be there. Maybe Mark will. Your guess is as good as ours. Stargazing. If you're on in the Western states, why not? Why not come? I mean, what kind of how bad of the commute could that really be to come check out that? And the uh, I've had correspondence with the gentleman putting it together. We're trying to uh, get him to do a, a, a little chat on the show. We'll see if uh, we can pull that off between now and January 20th, uh, 10th, whenever the hell. Well, that's exciting. Nice job, yes. Steve. Book and guests. I love it. You're welcome. That's what happens when you fall down a, re- a Reddit rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the wonders and the nightmares to be had. Yes. It's just one step closer trying- to getting Tony Visconti on the show. Exactly. And that will be when I can finally replace Eric with him full time. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, All right. Wish. 2001. What a year it was. What a time to be alive almost 20 years ago that's depressing that's crazy one two one two three yeah it's national underground thunderbounds when i stop the ground like a million elephants and silverback orangutans you can't stop a train yep that was a big year um did we talk about what we were all doing on 9-11 on the, uh, in the last season i am almost positive we did but why don't we go through it again? Why not? Why not? It, it, it's going to be, it's going to fold into this episode quite a bit. Um, I, for one, I was, I was away from home for the first time. I was at Sonoma State University. I was, I woke up and my roommate had the TV on. He was asleep, but he left the TV on. And I saw this news report and I was like, oh, went to class. Class got canceled. My ethics teacher said, yeah, we can't do this today. And then school itself got closed down. And then uh, my girlfriend at the time broke up with me to go after this Italian exchange student. That was so damn hunky in his Birkenstocks. That was my day. And then you started dressing like him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> In order to win her back, you know I did. And that all happened on September 11th. Is that what I'm hearing? Because that's like a Charlie Brown day for crying out loud. That's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that's my other uh, my other holiday hot take. I I decided lately. Even though I appreciate what is it the Vince Gallardi music? Is that how you say it? Yeah, let's go with that. Charlie Brown. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, now, now. <clears throat> yeah Gallardi. Vince Gallardi. Yeah. yeah. A little of that goes a long way, don't you think? Um, yeah, I'd say. I mean, um, just okay. that one riff on that piano riff is where everything is just rock solid. Um, but then it kind of goes into, you know, plink, plonk, plink, plonk, plink. You know, it just, you know, cat on a piano. Um, but it, that that piano riff is uh, kind of undeniable. No, 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 no. And then it just kind of goes off into a direction that you know i don't like that jazz uh here here's what i gotta say i actually am pretty fond of all the little jazzy charlie brown tracks 
The Charlie Brown Christmas special, what I like about it is the humor is very dry and it's very odd for that era. And, and in some ways it's like very almost like 70s quirky comedy. Um, that being said, it the the special itself go you know it gets a little heavy handed on the religion which i realize the holiday is all about the i mean i get that it's just not it's just not for me we're on christmas we're on christmas from eric look at this taking the christ out of christmas Shots we fired. say merry Shots christmas fired. now do you not know who's in the white house it was mandated that we do He just won the war on Thanksgiving as well, which I didn't even know we were fighting. It happened that fast. <laughs> the casualties were high. Uh, by the way, I want to specify, I was just talking about the music. I'm okay with, you know, Snoopy and Peanuts and everything. It's just the music during the holidays, you know. I'm in the Starbucks and that damn song plays 55 times and it takes me to get my drink. It's just a lot. I hear you. I'll still take it over. I'll still take it over some of that easy listening white Christmas schmaltz. But yeah. Michael Bublé. Hey, I, 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 I extended a uh, an olive branch to Mark recently, which I didn't, you know, not that there needed to be one, but I am a, I am a connoisseur of uh uh, what was that Christmas baby? Please come home song from Gremlins, and I discovered the U2 version of it. It's okay. There you go. It's pretty good. Put it in the wind column, folks. We're talking about 2001 because this is when Bowie was writing and recording the uh, Heathen. Heathen didn't drop till 2002, but um, the, his experience in 2001 I think is important to mention. Do you guys have anything else to say about your your handsome lives? During this time in 2001, I was just a little boy wanting to be a big boy. Um, and I just recently had started dating Jennifer, who's now my beautiful wife and why she's been married to me and why we've been together for almost near 20 years. Still life's biggest mystery, but wonderful patient, but patient. We're still there. And I was asking, I was, I was asking myself that same thing. Because at this time, Mark and I lived together, and I thought to myself, "Why well, I, I don't I don't understand any of this." But that's exactly fine. this it, it, like when he's looking at it, this doesn't even work on paper for crying out loud. <laughs> this thing looks like the Cybertruck. <laughs> <laughs> I've run the calculations, and it makes no sense. It's not mathematically sound. As uh, a, one science officer would say, highly illogical. From far beyond the galaxies, I've journeyed to this place to study the behavior patterns of the human race. And I find them highly illogical. Um, but anyways, that's what I was doing in the year 2001. Um, it was quite the odyssey that I was on and uh, was living with Steven. Going to school, I got kicked out of music class because someone crashed some planes and some buildings. I'm not trying to be flipping about it, but that's what happened. And it was absolute madness. I couldn't necessarily, I was too groggy from sleep. 
And it just made no sense. And uh, information was not quite solid at that point. That's all I had heard that planes crashed into the Twin Towers. Uh, it didn't seem like there was that many casualties because there wasn't that many people in the building. And then obviously as the day progressed um, and then hearing firsthand accounts of people having to jump out of the fiery buildings was absolutely a nightmare. And of course, my first thought went to my aunt and uncle who live in Manhattan. Um, and my uncle actually works in the financial district, uh, very close to where the Twin Towers started tumbling down. So you got to imagine my worry started to settle in and um, class was canceled. Uh, although I was enrolled in a yoga class and that was for whatever reason still on for the day. So uh, and so what so what Mark chose to do that day is he funneled his anxieties into he, he went to class. Hey, everybody. Uh, I am Mark. I know I don't talk much. Hold on a second. And he drags a chair to the front of the classroom and he puts on Billy Joel's River yep. of Dreams yep. and he starts <laughs> like a charm. and he starts doing an interpretive dance. Works like a charm. It brought people together oh. that day. Um, I really felt we did some healing <laughs> as a group. Um, and, you know, life moved on and uh, still had to go to work that day. And if I recall, it was a Tuesday, which is a record release day back in those days. And such albums as Slayer's God Hates Us All and Slipknot, Iowa, came out that day. And uh, it was quite a weird, weird day. Weird day. Wow. Let us not forget that uh, pulled at the last minute, at least for the artwork, was The Coup's new album. And I don't remember the name of the album, but the literally the album cover is one of them with like a cartoonish Looney Tunes style uh, bomb a remote device and they're pushing the button and blowing up the world trade centers do you guys I remember, do remember that? hearing about that yeah yes 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 wow uh let's uh we'll we'll get into how 9-11 was kind of informed this album but he also had written most of the lyrics before 9-11 but i think there's a the, the other album i always think of that was kind of unintentionally a 9-11 album was fugazi's the argument Fantastic record, and it, and it, that it is up. a it holds up very fantastic, well. fantastic album, and that came out in two thousand and one. Or I really thought that was like a ninety nine release or a two thousand release. Two thousand two thousand two, oh, I think. That th for them being their final record, because let's face it, they're probably not going to release anything else. Um, it's almost yeah. been two decades. Um, <laughs> that album is near perfect. No, guys, that that dropped that dropped on uh, that dropped on October sixteenth, two thousand and one. Look wow. at that! All right. That album is so good. Yeah, so good. It's my favorite one of theirs. Yes. Yeah. I guess you could say that there was just something in the zeitgeist at that time, leading to that general sense of anxiety that bubbled up in a few records. Um, yes. No, that was a great album, and um, Eric and I never got to see Fugazi. Neither did Mark, and Eric and I lamented uh, this together around this time when they broke up. What we settled for was, what did we go do? We went to some Indian food restaurant downtown and watched uh, Ian McKay and his wife do a show. Was that the best? Of the Mother India. 
Mother Mother India Indian food restaurant. Ian McKay and his wife had a band called The Evens, and they played uh, a bunch of tracks as we sat amongst the smells of non bread, and uh, I, uh, it was a nice experience. Even if I don't go back to those albums much, it was nice to see them play. It was it was uh, intimate. My 9-11 story, I've, I've probably told this before in the show. I was living with Mark in uh, Old Roseville, California, and I was rousted from my uh, my evening sleeping on the couch. Once again, not much has changed. And uh, I opened the door, and there was this old couple. They looked like a couple of uh, uh, Hell's Angels by way of um, Lodi, California. And they asked me if they could buy the refrigerator that was sitting in the alleyway next to the place we lived. And I, I told them, uh, uh, sure. I can't even remember if that was our old fridge or just a fridge, but they wanted to buy an old fridge. And I, you know, they were like, oh, wait a minute. I don't know if we can get cash out right now because all the banks are probably down because of those explosions in New York. And I was just like, what the fuck? That was a, uh, that's literally how I heard about this incident was uh, a couple of Looney Tunes lamenting that the banks might be down because of the explosions <laughs> in New York. So. <laughs> Did a, wow! I worked. I worked the story back from there to find out what the hell the rest of the world was looking at, and uh, there you go. Because I'm sure that you spent like a good ten minutes to go in, like, "Whoa, those tweakers are talking about explosions." Yeah, right. Yeah, right. exactly. It's like what, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. All right. That's so. So that's uh, yeah. That was that was the defining moment of uh, Christ the century, and uh, David Bowie's album was shaded by it a little. But something else had to happen in 2001. I mean, my God, that was the that was the year of um, Terminator Three: Rise of the Machine. Really? <laughs> oh, uh, let's 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 see. Yeah, let's see about that. Um, Did either one of you see Dark Fate? Which apparently is the real Terminator Three. No, it, it is, and I. I, 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 it's so hard to get to the movies these days uh, for a plethora of reasons, most of them being child. And um, no, I didn't see it. And I was kind of bummed out because apparently it was like, yes, it was the real Terminator 3 that everybody agreed on. And it made no money. So, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't take the movie away. But I know that every one of these goddamn movies now is set up for a franchise. So if I go into it, watching it, knowing that it's a franchise unfulfilled, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm even less enthused to see it. It's kind of stupid. Maybe they should make movies to stand on their own again. That's my yeah. platform for my 2020 presidency run. Make movies stand on their own again. Well, speaking of movies, we had the very first of the Lord of the Rings movies oh. drop this year. Fellowship of the Ring. Quality film, quality, quality series. I, uh, I'm itching to watch. I'm itching to watch the whole trilogy again. That movie is on the AFI list, by the way. Continue. Only that one. Only that one. But it's that's not the Stupid. one that won all that's the, the awards. It was that's, the Return of yeah. the King that did, I think. I would I would say uh, I felt like I felt like I liked the second one the best, the first one, and then Return of the King last. But maybe that's I'm more of a Hobbit guy. But go ahead. That's that's unfair. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> man, I got a few years. We've all we've all made mistakes and we've all done things we regret. 
in one night a few years back, I uh, late late night. How do you do with a little bit too much uh, Grandpa's cough syrup? Next thing I know, two weeks later, a Blu-ray copy of the third Hobbit movie arrives in the mail. <laughs> Worst purchase <laughs> I've ever made in my life. What? Did you even have the other two? <laughs> no, no, it makes it even more preposterous. Oh my. Oh wow. Uh, uh we also got the birth of the Harry Potter franchise with Philosopher's Stone dropped. Philosopher's Stone. That's the <laughs> the the British version and also the uh probably the Christian version. Sorcery <laughs> is not allowed here. Directed yeah. by Directed by Christopher Columbus. Yep. He did the first two. And he did direct Home Alone. And the reason I'm in a Home Alone mood, mood is if either of you ever watched those Netflix specials called The Toys That Made Us. Yes, I've watched a few. I saw the, fir- the first season. I really, I really like those. They're just breezy 45-minute documentaries on toys. And now they've made The Movies That Made Us. And it's the same exact format, same exact people. And the movies they do for their first season are Dirty Dancing, Die Hard, Ghostbusters, and Home Alone. So, Eric, I'll have you know that Daniel Stern gets a lot of talking time in the Home Alone episode. How, I like how, how, how you know that I've got a Daniel Stern thing. That's funny. All right. 2001 also gave us Shrek, Donkey, Monsters, Inc., Ocean's Eleven, we've, which we've brought up way too many times on this show. Jurassic Park three. Oh man, I was I was I was close with my Terminator three comment. Yes, yes. Uh, a a movie that will give us a song that we will be discussing in our next B side, Training Day. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, one movie that I'll never be able to forget about because I had to see it twice in one weekend, neither of which were my decision to go. It was Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor. Never seen it. Oh, it's atrocious. And I, all those movies are pretty bad. I do enjoy the Bad Boys films. and Bad Boys for Life coming out soon. The bad Boys for Life. But Pearl Harbor was so, so bad. So terribly bad. Anyways, I saw it, I saw it uh, twice in one weekend in the theaters. What we do for I love. Do. I do subscribe to the <laughs> Bad Boys movies. Even the second Bad Boys movie has so many, for lack of a better term, like bad habits you should not do in a movie, but it works. I, I'm a fan of that movie. So you 2 was blowing up in 2001, weren't they, Mark? Oh, my God. This album, though, like is also one of those albums that get lumped into a uh, a post 9-11 um, album that just kind of seeks to bring everyone together. It was like this album, that U2 album, All That You Can't Leave Behind, and Bruce Springsteen's The Rising. Those are the two albums that everyone was rallying around around this time of the post-9-11 era. But yes. And that album is mediocre at best. Is that is that the one that had Elevation on it? That's correct. That is right. Yeah, if, you, if you're going to have them two enter a ring, uh, the rising definitely knocks it out. Oh, yeah. Big time. I mean, uh, Latter-day U2, as much as I love that band, hit 
and miss. I mean, a lot of those uh, later re works are either just way too weighed down by the sappiness of it all. And it's just, I know that you could argue, well, that's U2, that's what they, that's, that's their currency, but um, they just wear it too damn thick on some of their later works. But anyways, Eric, continue. Yeah. Uh, big hit of this year, Weedus's Teenage Dirtbag. <laughs> Do you remember that song? Yes. Oh my God. I want to say, uh, what was that other uh that did the emo version of that boys in the hood song dynamite hack it was like that song and weedus's thing going on back and forth it was not a, it, it was the dark times have you ever heard the story of darth weedus <laughs> it is not a story of jedi okay <laughs> rise of skywalker coming soon <laughs> sorry Oh boy! So uh, Missy Elliott was uh, having a big year this year. Creed uh, slimed their way into our our top forties. Yeah, Destiny's Child was still going strong. Those are some of our big artists of two thousand and one. Big TV shows, big TV shows. So CSI started blowing up this year. Uh, one thing, you know, we, we don't often get into albums that came out during those times that affected us quite a bit. But there was one during this year that definitely changed my life. And uh, also uh, reverberated to where you guys did, were did, affected. Is that was the year the Neurosis is a Sun That Never Sets comes came out. And that's... Uh, oh boy, that's yeah, a good one. Yeah, that's, that's a great record. We've oh, all yeah. enjoyed it. And that definitely is where I became... It's not my favorite Neurosis album, but it's up there. But it's definitely where I was like, oh, I dig these guys. I got to dig back into their back catalog. That's it. I just wanted to. Came out in August 2001. Yeah. So good. So good. The song The Tide. I mean, my God, like, it could raise hairs on my arms just thinking about that song. It's also got that one on there mm. Falling Unknown, which is 13 minutes long. Yes. And the entire second half of it is like one minute, one instrument. Next minute, another instrument builds on top of it. Next minute, a violin. And they continue to like layer instrumentation for uh, like seven minutes straight. It's uh, wonderful. I want to say something that will probably get a little controversy. I think they're the Grateful Dead of, of metal. That's fine. And I don't even like the Grateful Dead, but they definitely know how to create this kind of like dicking around little folk metal thing going on. Yep. Um, that just seems to work. Nope. I'll, uh, I'll allow it. Both of the singers, both of the singers have solo albums that are like dark folk, like, and I mean that in the best way possible. And Steve Until and uh, oh fuck, That's Scott right. Kelly, Scott Kelly, yep. Both their solo their solo work is is worth everybody's time. 
they've also it's actually it's fitting that we bring them up in the same episode where we're going to talk about Neil Young later because um, they one of them covers some Neil Young songs and also at this point they've probably been around longer than the Grateful Dead were by the time Jerry died but um oh yeah anyhow yep that was a great album that came out that year so Eric uh, you were talking about TV I think Right, right. Not too much to report here. A lot of 90s shows were were winding down. Dharma and Greg, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Everybody Loves Raymond, 70s show. These shows were all kind of winding down. West Wing um, and some new stuff like CSI was coming up. Um, anyways, uh, nothing too big to report. I feel like the most edgy stuff was like South Park in, in 2001. There wasn't It wasn't a great time. How was South Park during that time? Uh, I feel like 2000. Yeah, this was when they got to get it started getting creative where like they killed Kenny for a whole season and then they resurrected him and then he shared a body with body with Cartman. It was kind of a crazy season. If I if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, that's wait a minute. You hear it? You hear the music? Oh, oh, I, I always try to just push right past this part. You're never going to push right past this part. Because much like uh, Jeremy Giambi pushing his way around the bases but not sliding in the home, <laughs> it's time to talk about sports. In 2001, where the Los Angeles Lakers defeated the Philadelphia 76ers in the, uh, the NBA Finals. And that's kind of heartbreaking because uh, that would have been one of the few times that Allen Iverson got to win any kind of championship of note. And I am a big Allen Iverson fan. We're talking about practice. Exactly. Remember yeah. that, that whole thing? I do. So good. Talking about <laughs> practice. And that was yet another, you know, <laughs> yeah, another title the Lakers won during when the Kings were really good, when they had the Vladi Divac, Mike Bibby era. Very irritating. I don't want to talk anymore about that. Let's uh, move on to football, where the Baltimore Ravens beat the New York Giants. And I bring that up for two reasons. One, because that's football 2001. But also, the San Francisco 49ers are on a tear this season. And tomorrow, they're playing the Baltimore Ravens. And this is a game that matters, folks. There you go. Over in the land of baseball, there are some depressing things that happened. For one, the A's, who had a great team that year, they lost to the Yankees in the uh, ALDS in a five-game series. I would rather not talk about it. I do believe that was the year of the Jeter flip incident, though. And uh, yeah. you've all, if anyone that's, you know, the Oakland A's, everybody knows that they're consistently good enough to at least sneak into the playoffs this century. But what most people know about the goddamn A's this century is that fucking Derek Jeter highlight where, uh, yeah, some ball... Kareem's around the goddamn outfield and somehow uh, Derek Jeter teleported and managed to, uh, uh, to, to, to pick somebody off trying to get a get get home from first base. And it's a miserable experience. I don't want to describe it any more than that. You can go look it up yourself. Also, that would be the year that the Mariners won 116 games in the regular season, but didn't do much more than that. Yeah, and that's also the year that everyone was rooting for the Yankees to actually win because obviously what happens in New York, George W. Bush comes out, throws the 
First pitch, everyone's going crazy. They're playing the Arizona Diamondbacks. Goes to seven games, and guess what happens? The Diamondbacks. Who win. wins, Steven? The Diamondbacks. That's right. That's right. They're, they're ter- I mean, good for them, but man, they had a terrible uniform. Jiminy. Terrible. <laughs> they had that, that tank top under over a shirt, uh, t-shirt look. The, it was the worst. The Diamondbacks still haven't figured out a decent uniform. It's been the, <laughs> no. like they expanded like uh, the late nineties. What was their first year? The, the, I, yeah, it was around the late nineties. Yeah, I think they were an expansion like team. And for whatever reason, them and the, uh, yeah, 98 and them and the Rockies, both who are two expansion teams around the same time, just have had terrible pastel and weird hues involved in their, their uniforms ever since. Yeah. The Florida Marlins and now Miami Marlins definitely fell into that, uh, day glow fluorescent streets of Miami look too. So, yeah, I would say though, in, uh, just having lived in Arizona, um, you know, if you're not walking around with like a shiny turquoise something, then you're doing something wrong out there. That's that that that's the fact. That's <laughs> and the for fashion, all so. Eric, for all of your crimes against fashion humanity, you did not bring that back with you from Arizona. <laughs> I did not. No, if Eric, it could be described in a color. It'd be the it'd be the color brown. <laughs> oh, Eric Anderson, browns and all yeah. grays. Eric Anderson, <laughs> yeah, he, you know. He looks brown. He feels like corduroy. That's uh, that's how they, that's how we describe you. That's 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 funny, guys. I've kind of changed my color palette the last few years. I don't know if you noticed, but that's that's you can hold you can hold uh, my you can hold the early aughts against me all you want, but that's fine. Uh, people do it to that's me fine. all the time, Eric. Listen, I just got a fucking flyer to the goddamn gathering of the juggalos. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they found. I don't know how they found my address. I just, you know, I they they always track me down. I guess uh, they're. <laughs> I guess my do my my um, my dues are due. My man can spend his twenties trying to be a Richie Tedden mom, and that's okay. All right. Listen. Exactly. Elbow <laughs> patches and sweater vests. Yeah. Now you know. Now as hard as you try to push this industrial cholo thing, we're still not going to let you forget uh, the bomber years. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right that's all right uh all right guys let's talk about what bowie was doing what do you say i took this walk to lose my mind find out what's snowing at me sure let's do it all right what was so, he doing eric yeah so the the, primarily, this album was uh, recorded over 2001. It wasn't released until June 2002. Um, but I say it's important because this album does get lumped in, like you said, with these these uh, 9-11 response albums. And Bowie was on record as saying, no, he wrote the lyrics to all these songs well before the date. So that's just why I bring that up. Um Bowie was in kind of an interesting uh, state around this time. Uh, his last studio album was, of course, ours that we often uh, I discuss am, uh, wearily. I am not like that might be we've gotten through some homework. That's the one I'm really dreading when the when the dice hits that one. I am just uh, it's going to be tough. Yeah. More than Tin Machine. 
I don't know. No, Tim Machine was one that I was definitely dreading. Ours, I feel, will be easy breezy, but I gotta say, it'll be a snoozer. Yeah, it's so. like it's it's feel gold. I have no recollection of that album. Uh, what year did that come out? Ninety nine. Two thousand. Uh, yeah, actually, it did come out in ninety nine. I think. Right. Yeah, same year as the Fragile. So, uh, Bowie had worked on another album in between. He worked on an album called Toy. Toy was a interesting project he did it with his his group at the time right he had he had mike garson he had gail and dorsey i believe he had reeves still rocking with him and what he wanted to do was he wanted to pull out some old songs some songs from his like pre-solo career bands um maybe do a couple old covers and maybe a couple little new things that have popped up in the meantime but he wanted to do it with his new sound and he did it, he finished it, he delivered it to his record label, and they said, great, thanks, we'll tell you when we're going to release it. We'll tell you when we're going to release it. Two years later, it was becoming more and more obvious that they were going to shelve the album. It was not going to be released. And that is the first time in David Bowie's career, even even considering what happened with the second Toy Ma- Tin Machine album, they still released it. This was the first time, of, essentially, an album had been rejected by his record label and and by rejected i mean passive aggressively they kept saying they were going to release it and they didn't well, so some it, yeah it sounds Sorry, to me on. like they listened to hours and they decided that then they listened to toy and they're just like all right let's uh this, this guy hasn't done much for us since uh let's dance enough is enough no and what record label was that, Eric? I, I believe it was different than what was released then with Heathen. Right, because he, did he put a Heathen out on BMI? Um, so yeah, EMI was where Toy and Ours lived. And then this album, Heathen, was his first one that he did with um, Columbia and ISO, which is owned by Columbia. Yeah. yeah. So it must have been, yeah, it must have been uh, EMI. Um, so yeah, he was... You know, he was probably a little bummed. That was the, that's the first time, you know, legend David Bowie couldn't put out what he wanted to put out. And um, we did put Toy on our roll. I think the only way we can listen to it is on YouTube or something, but we'll give our two cents on that yeah, eventually. We'll, uh, we'll, 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 uh, we'll do a, an episode proper for it. A, two, a few of those songs did wind up on the bonus disc, um, although I think they were re-recorded for Heathen, so we'll, we'll, we'll discuss those when the, time's, when the time's right. A couple of the, or one of them for sure did wind up on Heathen proper, and we'll, we'll get to that. He had not spoken to his friend and longtime collaborator, Tony Visconti, since uh, Let's Dance. When um, they had a hit with Scary Monsters, Tony assumed he, he booked the studio time, he assumed he'd be helping out with Scary Monsters, and then Bowie's people said... Sorry, pal. We got we got uh, Niles. Eric, you know what's inter- Eric? You know what's interesting is we haven't had a chance to talk about this, but um, I was doing some deep diving on Reddit again, and someone actually sent me some tapes of their uh, when they reconciled uh, to record Heathen. So um, you want to listen to those real quick? I think we should put those on. All right, give me a second. Well, hello there, Tony. Oh my God, Dave, David Bowie, what are you? Who died? Who did Rick Wakeman die? Uh, Lenny Pickett? No, no, no one died. Uh, not yet. But 
It's just me, yes, the thin white duke himself, David Bowie, picking up the telephone and calling you, my old friend, Tony Visconti, the man that made so many great records with me in the late 60s through the 70s and the early 80s. Yes, Tony Visconti. When was the last time we spoke, Tony? It was 2001 now, and it, my God, almost 10 years ago. We, uh, was it when I crashed your wedding? <laughs> Sorry oh. about that, by the way, pal. That's not a good uh, memory that I don't have anymore. If I recall correctly, you were a little jealous of Mr. Reeves Gabriel. I, no, actually, no. Wait, hold on. Tin Machine. Hey, Tony, when did I put Tin Machine out? Yes, yes, Tim Machine, uh, yeah, you did that before you got married, and then, uh, I may or may not have bugged you a few times, uh, when you made, uh, outside and hours, but, yes, it's, uh, yes. Been, it's been, it's been scattering moments since we've chatted. Yes, and, and I, I certainly I, haven't worked together. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you this much. Reeves is out of the picture, Tony. Oh, God. God. My goodness. I kind of, hey. You know, hey, who am I to call someone dead weight? But, you know, hey, man, if, you, if it looks like an anchor and it walks like an anchor, you know? Yes, well, with that ponytail, who knows? But, uh, anyhow, I'm not here to speak ill of the departed. Uh, not dead, just not on my records anymore. I do believe he's, uh, possibly going to journey... He might be joining Dream Theater. Yes, but I, I was thinking maybe it's time for us to finally noodle together again. Oh, my dreams, my... My prayers, they've, they've come true. Hey, Dave, I love it. What are you thinking? What, what are well, you kicking around? I've got some ideas about what's in the zeitgeist right now and general paranoias and anxieties and dreads and maybe a little bit of optimism at the same time. I, I think you could dig in there and help me find something out. Hey, I think so. Hey, man, we're working together. Yeah, the sky's the limit. Hey, right, pal? Exactly. When we are working together, you and I, we're a regular Maguire and Conseco, a couple of bashing pair of brothers. That's right. Hey, we're like a Sonny and Cher, you know? <laughs> exactly. We're like Mario and Luigi. Hey, <laughs> hey, we're like uh, peanut butter and chocolate, you know? <laughs> exactly. We're like Wario and Waluigi. <laughs> Why not peanut butter and jelly? Hey, old classic. <laughs> How about uh, just, you know, like Reagan and Bush Sr. at the height of their powers, really? Oh, yeah, like Weird and Gilly. Or Bob Hoskins and Captain Hook. Oh, that's right. <laughs> hey, what about Starsky and Hutch, right? They're right up there with Andre the Giant and Wallace Shawn. Much more than inconceivable. Oh, that's right. Hey, what about Riggs and Murtaugh? <laughs> A great I... old classic duo. I can't think of them without thinking of Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton. Of course not. Hey, we're going to be a great team. We're going to be like that old folk singer Crosby Stills and his best friend Nash Young. <laughs> oh, yes. I, you know, that reminds me. Young's got some songs that are worth taking a stab at. Almost like when John McEnroe took a stab at Bjorn Bjorg. Look back in anger indeed. Mm, indeed. Uh, we'll be a lot like uh, Spock and Kirk. Oh, reminds me of Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. Fa la 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 rock and roll with me. Yeah. Oh, hey, why couldn't we be like Kirk and Bones, you know? Hey, you could have two best friends. There's no reason you can't. 
Bones to Kirk is definitely your poncho to my lefty. That's Willie and Myrtle for the uneducated. <laughs> we could be uh, Chekhov and, well, who was Chekhov's friend? Oh, fuck. Scotty? Shit. I'm sorry, I've been a Star Trek kick lately. Go on. That's uh, that's it. Okay, great. Well, hey, I, 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 we, we are, we could be like all of them and so much more because you know what none of them did? None of them made scary monsters and super creeps. Exactly. Beam me up to another collaboration that'll be right up there with scary monsters, which I swear all of my albums since were supposed to be as good as. So why don't we finally do it? Let's make that sequel that everyone's been clamoring for. Let's do it. Let's hit it. Uh, you know what? Why don't you come up to my house? It's just a humble abode in upstate New York. We'll uh, get together. We'll strum on some keys. We'll tinkle the ivories. And uh, next thing you know, bam, we'll have a hit. Uh, I love it. Uh, you know, Tony, I'm starting to believe again. I almost was falling out of faith there and was becoming what one could call a heathen. Oh, my God. I'm going to cry. Dave, I think you just got yourself a bingo. Wow. That, that, you know what? I am not surprised. You know, as always, a little hot-headed, that Tony. But he made some great points. So I guess what had happened is, you know, it was the first time they'd been together in a while. Tony and his wife lived in this little home uh, in upstate New York in a place called West Nyack. They invited him to come out. Tony's wife had actually said, I half expect Bowie to pull up in our driveway, look at our house, tell us, oh, I forgot something in my car, get in his car and drive back to New York because it was it was a very like humble abode. But he had his recording studio inside and they got in there. They started planning. What they wanted to do was like an autumnal album. They wanted it to feel like the fall, like um, which I think helped me in my mind space listening to it quite a bit. It, it enhanced the experience. And then what they really did was they, uh, when they were ready to record, they booked time, this recording studio that's in the like gorgeous mountainscape in upper, uh, uh, upstate New York. And, um, that's where they really like battened down and recorded this thing. That's, uh, that's, and he started writing and he was clearly in a headspace where he was thinking about the anxieties in the world and what that does to man's soul and faith. And a lot of that came out. Um, do you guys have, I got some notes on some of the collaborators. Yes. Yeah, so who was, uh, th this album has, uh, who, who are the featured players and then who are the guest stars in this one? The featured players are, t are Bowie and Tony. Like Bowie plays almost every instrument. Um, Tony plays his bass and he does the string arrangements and some synthesizer work. Um, and that's it. But they did bring on some regulars like Sterling Campbell on drums, Carlos Al Alomar, Matt Chamberlain also on drums. Um, but they they don't designate in the liner notes who does what on what song. And to be fair, and to Bowie's credit as a musician, which he doesn't get credit for enough, I mean, it's not clear which ones he's on. And I think that's a great thing. He's like a really competent studio musician on the, on, on this album. Um, so. Uh, oh, you know who does have? If you hear any horn work on the album, that is the crew that did his uh, his 80s work with him. So, like, if you heard horn work on, say, Never Let Me Down, that was the, they brought those guys back. Must have been a 
friends, you know, Bowie's friends or something like I that. I do want to point out a few things. One is that this is the first album since Tin Machine that doesn't have Reeves Gabriel. And maybe that's uh, it's a good thing. This album also doesn't have Earl Slick, by the way, in case you're looking for him. But it does have Tony Levin doing some bass work along with Gail Ann Dorsey, who both came back for the next day, of course. Actually, Gail Ann Dorsey is not on this album. Fixing that in post. <laughs> she was on the toy. She was on the toy sessions, so maybe on some of the B-side stuff. We uh, we also have uh, keyboardist for Dream Theater, uh, Jordan Rudis. I Steve, I feel like you could tell us a little bit about Dream Theater. Unfortunately, I can't. I've never delved into them. I like if I if I'm heading if I'm if I'm heading down Dream Theater way. I usually get off at the uh, Queen Drake Turnpike before I get to Dream Theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I confuse those oh. two two bands. Yeah, I never never made the time. Um, one of these days, you know, it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, Christ Almighty, I I, I got into the Devin Townsend project this year, which is uh, I'm sure there's a lot of crossover with Dream Theater there. Um, I, I also want to mention that. Uh, um, Yes, Carlos Salomar is back doing guitar on some tracks. And in the guest guest star category, Pete Townsend comes back, and uh, as well as a, a first time appearance by Dave Grohl. That's right, playing guitar. Um, and then uh, Christine Young does a lot of piano work on this album. Um, and then uh, Tony does the string arrangements, but he has a whole um, like chamber of. Uh, or at least a quartet of string players, cello players, violin players that show up on this song. This is a very string heavy album. So I find it very interesting that David Bowie and Tony play a lot of the guitars in this album. That's right. That's right. I mean, Bowie's even playing the drum set on a, on a few tracks. That's it. They had a lot of players. They recorded a lot of it in that studio in the Hills, but I think some of it, they took back to New York and did some session work. I think they did a lot of like, uh, emailing the Pro Tools tools files and then somebody recording something and, email, and sending it back, that kind of thing, which at the time was cutting edge pen pal musicians. But that, they, uh, they constructed this album, which dropped in June 2002. I, for one, remember I had just met you guys that year in 2002. We were yeah, working this, at the record this store. Is, this is an guys, interesting uh, this is an interesting one because this is the first album I think we've talked about. No, the next day. I, I How do I put this? Out of the albums we've talked about, this is the earliest one in the chronology that I remember coming out when it came out. Does that make sense? That you got it. Yeah, you bought it when it came out. Yeah, yeah because we haven't hit hours yet. We haven't done Outsider Earthling, and I don't even think I did. I bought those two when they came out. So, yeah. I remember very... Very so. Let, let's do a Jay Sherman roundup here. Uh, the critics once again. Everybody was like, "Oh, return to form," but this time I think we're serious. Um, uh, the Entertainment Weekly gave it a B plus. Rolling Stone gave it three and a half stars out of no, no, no. Yeah, three and a half stars out of out of five. Uh, Mojo was uh, four out of five. Enemy was uh, also four out of five. Um, Pitchfork gave it a whole 7.8 out of 10, which is pretty high for Pitchfork standards. Um, so overall, Strong Metacritic gave it a 68 out of 100. They put it through the organ grinder, and that's the number that comes out of all of the reviews that are compiled. 
So that's pretty high. Uh, I know you would think on a, if you're grading it on a curve, 68 out of 100 is still a probably a D plus, but um, most of those reviews are pretty high. The Village Voice was just said it was okay, C plus, but yes. A lot of the a lot of the promotional material really was pushing the Tony Visconti is back angle, and first times in scary monsters, and you know we know you've heard us mention scary monsters before, but we're serious this time. And while I don't think you're going to put this in the same uh, category as scary monsters, I would say that probably, maybe, in between scary monsters and this album. This probably is a high watermark closest to Scary Monsters from those records that came out in, in the meantime. You might be able to make an argument for like outside or something, but it definitely. It's after- funny you say that. Yeah. Uh, listener Nick Meyer said that throughout the 90s, every album that he released, the reviewer said it's his best in Scary Monsters. But after 18 years, I think it's safe to call Heathen, the classic Bowie album, definitely one of his best. So Nick, Nick Meyer, it's funny, brought that same thing up. All right, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's where we were, that's where he was, that's where the Arizona Diamondbacks were. Why don't we talk about the record itself? Sunday. And by the way, you guys, I just looked and it was Area 2 that Bowie performed, not Area 1. So you guys had corrected me on an earlier episode, and I just want to say I want to set the record straight. Area 1 had Outcast and New Order on it, and then Area 2 had Bowie, Buster Rhymes, and Blue Man Group. Gotcha. You know, it's funny. I remember hearing that in that, in that episode, and I was like, what am I talking about? Like, I know what I'm talking about. I have no <laughs> idea what these, these festivals were. I, I spoke with such confidence. Like, I knew what I was, like, <laughs> corrected you. Like, I knew what the hell I was talking about. Yikes. Everything has changed. And when, and when are the Vanga Boys coming? Uh, yes. Another CD found in Steven's record collection during this year. <laughs> I actually, um, I, yep, I own that. And, uh, but that one though, I like, I, it was probably about 2000 and I sat there one day and I was just like, what am I doing with my life? And I took it and I took it and then we lived in that bad apartment in Rockland 
And I just went in the balcony and threw it off the balcony like a frisbee, <laughs> just into the air. <laughs> that was that. From whence, from whence you came. Yeah. Uh, 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 twinkle, twinkle, Vanga boys. As you throw it out. To the those great America commercials with that guy in the old man suit. <laughs> it looked like a... He looked like somebody dressing up like Uncle Junior from The Sopranos. Uncle Junior meets like one of the Duracell commercials. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, guys, that was not the Vanga Boys. That was a little song called Sunday. Yes, it was. And boy, howdy, I, uh, I really do enjoy this album opener. It's, it's an atmospheric song. Um, it kicks in really towards the end with those drums kind of swirling in. Um, as an immediate post 9-11 song, uh, well, this album was actually released June of 2002. So you still kind of have some of that reverberations of what, you know, 9-11. And of course, you're just trying to make the connection about how it's hard to deny that everything has changed. Uh but obviously Bowie came out and said, look, this is not intentional. Most of the lyrics were locked and loaded by July and August before any of this happened. And if you essentially put on any old Dylan record is what he had said, you would think it would match up perfectly, but it just happened to be coincidental. But I would have to say it's hard not to see some of that uh, imagery where nothing remains. We could run when the rain slows, look for the cars or signs of life. We could crawl under the bracken, which big fan of that line because you don't hear the word bracken too much. It it definitely makes me think of something that, right. uh, you know, hiding under rubbish as it's falling from the sky. Um, but I, I really do enjoy this song. It's it's very it's very powerful. I like, I like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like he he is just kind of talking about a post-apocalyptic cityscape. Um, and just kind of like that fear of searching for other lives, like, you know, where he says, um, look for the drifters, um, or when he says, uh, where the heat goes, it's like, it's, you know, in that cold post-apocalyptic world, you're looking for heat because heat means there's signs of life. Um, and, uh, nothing has changed. Everything has changed kind of thing. Um, just in the sense that humans will keep being humans in a very pessimistic kind of way. Um, but at the same time, you know, in doing that, uh, reality has absolutely changed. And um, I really don't think it's, it's post nine 11. It's just impossible not to have your head go there. Yeah. I really am a big fan of the uh, song delivery. It's like Bowie doing a, like a, like a monk chant. And especially it doesn't, it really uh, goes a little further with, um, the vocal kind of bleed through, like in your fear, seek only peace. Yep, I, I I noted that part. You know what's funny about that? That is Tony V. That's Tony Visconti, who has claimed that he studied with monks and learned how to sing two octaves at the same time, which is fucking. See, there you go. Shit. That's impossible. And so he was. So those those lines. That's Tony V. Doing that. So yeah. Very cool. Yeah, this album's a bit or this song is a bit sleepy. But I do really think it, it there's there's two points where it comes alive for me. And one is that in your fears monk chant, which apparently is Tony Visconti. 
And then, Mark, like you mentioned, the last minute of this song, the drums kick in, the live bass kicks in, and uh, David Bowie actually really belts out a, everything has changed. He really he hits some notes there. And uh, it, 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 I think it's a good introductory song. It kind of sets the table for the album pretty well. Um, it, it, it's kind of sleepy. Like, there's a couple parts in this album that kind of sound sleepy to me. And I, it kind of gives me the, back to that 9-11 vibe. Like the day after kind of phenomenon, like you're you're sifting through rubble, you know. And there's a couple parts in this record that give me that vibe. This song definitely does give yeah. me that vibe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's cool. It's cool to open a track with just him and like swirling synths. And I could see maybe like you guys who had, I, I personally for me, the last album I listened to, Earthling. I didn't even listen to Hours, so I could see maybe like you listen to Hours and you're like worried maybe when he's starting like. This sounds sleepy. Ours was really fucking sleepy. Like he is singing better than he's than he's sung most of his career on this song. And then yeah, they just the change is just right until the drums just kind of thump in and you get a big you get a big swooping ending to this song. Which apparently when he played it live, you guys could maybe vouch for this. Apparently they really extend that outro where they they'll go on for another two or three minutes and just um just that just that huge swooping sound. So, you know, it's funny as I'll have to go back and check my notes. I can't remember if they did do an extended outro. Um, I know they, they, they did definitely play the song when we, um, saw them in San Jose. I can't remember if they did a big extended outro, but it's funny you mentioned that because there is a song later in this album where I think the song demands an outro and you never get it, but that's for a track later. Um, anyhow, good opening track. Yeah, and you're right. It, it, I I don't remember if I thought that, but I definitely could see there definitely had to be a David Bowie fan out there saying, "Oh Christ, is this going to be hours all over again?" And and by that last minute there, you should be you know you you should by the last minute of this song and definitely by track two, you you can calm down. Right. I I remember you guys playing it for me at work when we worked at the record store. And um, you're like, oh, you haven't heard the new one? And I said, oh, no, I haven't really listened to anything since Earthling. And in my head, I'm like, I wonder, you know, I wonder what Bowie sounds like now. You know, music has changed so much. And I had li- I was listening to a lot of, you know, kind of like lo-fi indie rock stuff of the era. And um, when I heard this, I thought, you know, he wasn't aping any of that. But production-wise and everything, it fit right in. It would, and sometimes it was... It was timeless in its production, and at other times it, it had the big strings that were very like signature sound of Bowie. So, it uh, I was I was very impressed. All right, so I think we're all in agreement that it's a good al- album opener that kind of takes us by surprise uh, with that last little outro. So let's go ahead and prick our fingers on the cactus with track two, Cactus. One of the instances where I do believe 
the cover is of better quality than the original. What say you, Eric? Uh, I, I'd agree with you. Um, this is off Pixie's Surfer, Surfer Rosa. Um, and actually, I'm not the world's biggest Pixies fan. I actually always like them when, when I hear them. But I feel like they've just been around me so much that I've never given them the deep, deep dive they deserve. I just thought, oh yeah, that sounds great. You know, it's lo-fi, quiet, loud, quiet, loud. It's that's that's my thing. It sounds great, but I've never really given it the deep dive it deserves. Um, the original version of the song is just fine, but um, he definitely takes it takes it other places. And what I think is interesting about the sound of this song was it's it's perfect that he covered it because the Pixies wanted to make a Mark Bolan T Rex esque track. It was so funny when I was driving and I was playing this album with my wife, who's a big Bowie fan, and she heard this and she was like, this is a cover of T-Rex, right? And I was like, no, Pixies doing their version of T-Rex. So, um, so much so that in that middle part of the song where in this track, when Bowie says D-A-V-I-D, and the Pixies, uh, then they spelled out T-R-E-X, they spelled out T-Rex, um as their own little tribute. Uh, anyways, it's it's just a, a big love letter to uh, glam rock, and it just makes perfect sense that Bowie covered it. And he does a great job. It's, it sounds like he could have written it. Yeah, I do agree with both of you. Um, I, I am a fan of Surfer Rosa and Doolittle. I think those are really strong Pixies records. I'm not a huge... Um, uh, I'm not a big fan of the Pixies by any means, but they they definitely deserve their place in being an influential alternative rock band. Um, this song, um, it, it's kind of interesting with David Bowie's vocal performance because you can kind of tell that he is trying to uh, not only sing in his own style, but also uh, pay homage to uh, Frank Black's uh, vocal performance as well, who I'm sure that Frank Black was trying to do with Mark Boland. Yeah, some of the, so it all comes around. On on some of those uh those you know da 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 on a cactus tree da 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 and give it to me. He definitely there's like a, an overdub of of him singing at a higher pitch. Um apparently this is all David Bowie playing most of the instruments and just uh Tony Visconti's playing bass on this track and I think David Bowie's even playing the drums on this track. Um, the creepy lyrics certainly don't come off as too creepy from someone from a man in his fifties. Um, you know, by, uh, would you take off your dress and send it to me, make your dress all wet and send it to me. I mean, there, there's some creepy lyrics in here, but it's, I, 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 I really do enjoy this song. I like the Pixies version because of its kind of low fineness, but, um, I think that, uh, David Bowie, he puts his fingerprints on it and he makes it a little more fleshed out. And uh, I really enjoy it. I think it's a it's a good little contribution to the record. There's a yeah, run out in the desert heat. So like sweat in your dress and, and send it to me. I miss, So at sometimes it seems like somebody who just misses a loved one so much. He's like, just send me some clothes so I can, you know, I don't know, put your clothes on. And I mean, which Bowie putting on a dress and dancing around it is not like the craziest thing in the world either. That kind of makes sense thematically for him as well. Now the, the, the point of view I believe he is going for was a prison inmate writing to his uh, lady friend and asking her to prick herself on a cactus and put the blood in a dress and send it to him. 
that's the impression I get. Um, yeah, I am a big fan of this track. I, I like the placement of it on the record. It kind of kicks things up a notch. I was not aware that was David Bowie playing the drums there, which is pretty cool because um, there might be a couple. I, I don't know if there's other drummers on it, but the drumming on this song has like it hits pretty hard. It has a good analog feel to it, very John Bonham esque, and uh, that's that's pretty cool. If uh, David Bowie was the one pounding those skins, and also on the um, on the I miss your and and I miss your this, I miss your that, and the letter the, that you're writing tells me you're not dead. Whatever the hell the lyrics are. After that, there's this like orchestral kind of a synth going on with some rising action that uh, does a lot for me on this track. Um, yeah, and I, 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 I often forget this is a, a Pixie song. Uh, the original version is just very lo-fi. It's okay. Uh, but I, I really prefer this version. It's a lot it, it fleshed out, and I think it's, it's longer. And, uh, you know, uh, somebody asked Frank Black about it about a decade ago, and he said, do I like David Bowie? A big yes. How do you feel when David Bowie covers one of your songs? Uh, really great. You know, it's like having Jesus Christ come out of the clouds and say, you have done well, my son. It doesn't get any bigger than that. So not like you think he'd have a problem with it, but Frank Black was a pretty stoked he did this song. I did like the uh, anecdote that I had found in my studies where when they were doing the spelling out, uh, in the Pixies version, when they were spelling out T-R-E-X, uh, Kim Deal refused to do it. She's like, that's too silly. That's not what pixies are about. And so like, she went out for like a smoke break or whatever. And, and Steve Albini was like, come on, we got to do it now. <laughs> and then they all recorded them just like all spelling out T-Rex uh, in the song. So I just thought that was funny. It's funny. You mentioned that because Steve Albini also produced neurosis a son that never sets. That's true. Yeah. Uh, right. Among many, 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 many other records by many bands. Uh, join us for season joins us for season five where we cover all of big blacks discography <laughs> friend of the show if steve albini was capable of having friends friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> all right let's go to track three slip away space, it's always 1982 the joke we always knew Oh, what's the matter with you? Come on, let's go. Slip away. Oh, oh. don't forget to keep your head warm. Twinkle, twinkle. That was Slip Away. This song was originally titled Uncle Floyd. It was supposed to be off of that unreleased album, The Toy. Um, it did get itself a little bit of a reworking here and uh, retitled to Slip Away, which does uh, have a lot of information around this children's cartoon. Uh, or not, it wasn't a cartoon, it was a children's like a Mr. Rogers type show, which was even more offbeat. Yeah. Um, it was only shown in the kind of the New York area, 
and that was Uncle Floyd. Um, I have to say, this song is quite something. Um, I know that it uh, really kind of goes through um, this uh, Uncle Floyd character and, you know, talking about Oogie waits for just another day. And I believe that was the name of his dog or something on the show. For me, this song, uh, it really reminds me of like a Roger Waters type song. Um, I could see this being played off of um, like a final cut or even one of uh, uh, Roger Waters solo works. It's just there's a lot of atmosphere, a lot of building up. And it's also talking about nostalgia and reminiscing about a, a, a time past that generally seems to be Roger Waters's thing especially around uh, the final cut and we'll probably talk about that in season eight when i was driving to amador for thanksgiving what album do you think i put on final cut yes not which was... on, we gotta get on with this film yeah <laughs> yeah yep two yeah. days ago it was a i'm going through a a roger waters and credence phase right now so there you go not not together. That would have been interesting if they did any music together. Yeah. Uh, they had similar haircuts. Give them that much. But carry on. The chorus is really something. There's some high highs in this song. Uh, with this song, it, it's uh, it's another little surprise sneaker. Um, the fact that it kind of starts a little slow and then it really starts to progress. And then that chorus. Don't forget to keep your head warm. Twinkle, twinkle, Uncle Floyd. And you got the strings just working overtime. You've got Bowie really singing to the rafters. It's a it's a really powerful song. Uh, it's a very moving song that I really am. I subscribe to this. Uh, whatever he's selling, I'm buying. Yeah, no, I'm I'm right there with you. Uh, it's it's a powerful song, and um, I think in the earlier versions he leaned way more into the Uncle Floyd stuff. Um, which, uh, uh, when you look into this Uncle Floyd thing, it's it's it was a very interesting kid show where it was like really out there and like I think like Cindy Lauper and the Ramones were on it and um, he had these puppets, he had Bones and Oogie and it was uh, it was it was rather ridiculous. Um, and I guess what happened was wait like the year before John Lennon died when Bowie was doing Elephant Man, John Lennon had uh, told him about the show. And they both like went nuts for it and would watch together all the time. So he's got that kind of happy memory. You know, Eric, this would be like if um we had much more musical talent than we have. And we actually managed to pull off some of our attempts at uh, songcraft and releasing music in our youth, in our 20s, let's say. Yeah. Uh, we would have written a song called um, Looking Back Again. And it would have sounded extremely sentimental. But then when you peel apart the lyrics, they were all about Mr. Show skits. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's true. Although I would say this one, I think originally that's what the song was. But he's pared it down with only a few references to Uncle Floyd. Obviously, Uncle Floyd's in the chorus. But um, what it's about is it's about nostalgia. There's that great line where he's like, you know, you could have been big. Uh, but, uh, what is it? Um, no one knew what they could do except for me and you. And that's a sweet little line about John Lennon right there. I think, um, just, yeah, exactly. When you're nostalgic for something and you have somebody that you're nostalgic about it with. Exactly. Um, but it, it is also kind of like part, 
part of it makes me think of some of the Twin Peaks themes in like the return where it's when you make when art is appreciated and then it disappears, like where does it go? And and that's why there's these images of these puppets, like slowly dragging themselves along. Nobody sees them and they go out to the stars. And that's where this art, this forgotten art goes. This weird, obscure thing that he liked has disappeared to the stars. And it's not just that it's bigger. It's 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 bigger. And it's about, um, you know, the world changes and these forgotten pieces of work, you know, they're still out there. But where are they? And it's a. Uh, it's I think it's pretty beautiful. I'm I'm right there with you, Mark. This this one gets me moved right off the bat. I assume this is going to be my favorite song on the album. Turns out it's not, but it's very very close, and it's 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 probably the most moving. Yeah, you guys said a lot of the the things I wanted to say, which I appreciate. Takes the heat off me. Um, but this is a a fantastic song. I thought it was a fantastic song when the album first came out. When we went back to do the album for our podcast. I was very excited when I got to this track and I was like, holy shit, this song. Um, yeah, it's soaring. It's sweeping. It's got that. It's kind of got a, um, a space oddity synthesizer by way of Coney Island. Not just saying that because he says Coney Island, you know, the one that's kind of during the outro. Um, I, it, it kind of sounds like the way this, this electronic sound that, is part of the closing of the song sounds to me is similar to maybe like one of the animatronic birds in the hall of presidents or something at the Disneyland. It's just this ridiculous sound. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know what? Actually what I saw was it sounded like he dusted off that old, um, broken synthesizer from the space oddity recording sessions. Remember we talked about that briefly. Yeah. And I think he dusted it off for this track. Yeah. No, I, I, I think he was good to do that. And also Visconti's uh, strings on this this song, the string work with the barroom piano is perfect together. It just really creates a a warm feeling. And even though a lot of the lyrics are about this TV show that neither of us have seen, the three of us, um, they manage to tell the story of these characters. But also the themes seem to be global and universal. And even if you don't know what show he's talking about, like I've never seen this show. You know, it, it still it, it, it conveys the feeling of uh, nostalgia uh, in a way that I think few songs do. I think it's a great song. I think it's really, really great song, really a uh, highlight of uh, the whole David Bowie discography. It's a good one. It is. And that instrument is the stylophone. It kind of looks oh. like you're uh, writing something on an Apple Newton pad. But uh, yeah, you've got a little <laughs> stylus and it's like touching this little pad that sets off these different tones. Um, and I remember when they played this at the area Two show, um, he did bring that bad boy out. Yeah. What can I say? He was good to me. Very good to me. We had a relationship and a lot of people know that. And he wrote the song and he came to the bottom line to see me and, uh, he'll be missed. I mean, you know, he was a one of a kind act, an artist, in the fullest sense of the word. And he loved everybody who was off the path. Uh-huh. And, and he's attracted to you. I mean, you see, how much of a tribute is it to you, Uncle Floyd, that David Bowie is attracted, you know, is attracted to you as an artist, as attracted to what you do so much that he wrote a song about you? 
Well, he he did tell me that I reminded him of the um, the old school English music hall comedians who played music and did parodies and comedy and wore costumes and that kind of thing. He uh, had an appreciation for that kind of art, or which is pretty much gone now. But he he liked that, and uh, he came to the bottom line one night in December of 1980, a couple of weeks after Lenin was murdered. Right. And uh, I remember I, I had a big meeting. I had 17 people in the show, and I said, listen, Bowie's in the front row at 1 o'clock. In other words, from our stage, we look at the audience as a clock. 1 o'clock meant off to your right. And, right. Uh, so he's at 1 o'clock, and um, don't draw attention to him. I says, whatever you do, don't acknowledge him, make fun of him, joke with him, honor him, nothing. Leave him alone. Because the audience is going to be looking at him. And <laughs> You're thinking this all the so time. I was so concerned about that. But he went out, he was laughing and applauding and acting like the biggest fan. And then he came backstage after the show, uh -huh. and the whole troupe was assembled there. And I asked him before he left, I said, how did you find out about our TV show? Now, you must understand he was doing Elephant Man on Broadway at the time. Right, right. So he, and he looked at us and he said, John Lennon told me about it. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and that's the truth. And there were 17 people witnessed that, and that's the kind of guy he was. He left in a dramatic moment like that. And he sent me a Christmas card every year except this year. And I had heard from people in the industry that mm -hmm. he wasn't well. He was suffering some kind of problem. We weren't sure. We didn't, you know, pro right. was a cancer, and it finally took him. But uh, bravely, he fought it and didn't want his audience to know and anybody to know. So at the at the end of this track, and I'm actually I, I'm really impressed with uh, what this album does right here. At the end of this song, I think that Slip Away could be borderline, maybe emotionally exhausting. It's a very it's six minutes long and it hits you in the feels, if you will. And the next track, Slow Burn, I think is perfectly placed and let's hear a track. Let's hear a clip of that. So that was a little bit of slow burn. And I think after the uh, emotional wallop we just took from Slip Away, you need to pick yourself up a little bit. But much like being a deep sea diver, you don't want to go all the way up and all of a sudden be dancing all around in the clouds. You need, you need like a mid-tempo song that just takes you to the right point. And I think Slow Burn does a great, great job of that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great grooving, grooving track. And uh, Mark, how do you feel about Slow Burn? I really enjoy this, uh, this song. 
I remember this being the first single, and I think I may have seen uh, David Bowie maybe perform this on like Letterman or something like that. Uh, but that opening guitar squall, um, that is Pete Townsend on guitar mm-hmm. on this track. And um, it's a catchy song. If you could have, if you could have, uh, repeat yourself in one second, but I, I could have, for my money, until I looked, I thought that was Earl Slick. But no, um, Earl Slick is obviously the the touring guitar player. But Earl Slick was nowhere to be found on the recording of this. Um, it was it was Pete Townsend that was playing that guitar lick, um, and this song earned uh, Bowie a Grammy nomination for best rock male vocal performance. He didn't win. I don't know who he lost to. I'm sure it was I don't know someone else. Scott Stapp. I'm sure it was probably a Creed song. His vocal on like a slow burn of how he hits a, that really high note, uh, leading us on and on uh, like a slow burn. Um, it, I, it, it just really feels like a. It's a modern rock song, but not done in a way that is overly trying too hard to fit in to. I guess contemporary rock music it bowie's still doing his own thing but still able to make and craft a really catchy rock song um it's up tempo it's got this really nice plotting bass line um uh drum work everything the the band sounds tight as a drum and also the production um everything is got room to breathe in a in a song that uh has kind of a lot going on It, it nothing seems too cluttered um I, I love this song. I think it's a great little single for it, even though it wasn't released as a single in the UK. Uh, but here in the US, it, it worked for me. I was I was I was buying it. I was really excited uh, to purchase this record because I know I think I heard this song before the record was coming out. There is a music video. I didn't revisit it, but I think it's just Bowie in the band, and I think Earl Slick is in that video. Um, performing it and you got some young woman um some ingenue kind of just uh roaming around the control room kind of touching the mixing board and you know doing her thing watching bowie just smooth it out what do you think eric yeah it's a great song and i think it's so weird that the uk wouldn't didn't believe didn't believe it enough to make it a single the only song off this album they made a single out of was everybody says hi so everyone says hi. So that's that's another story entirely. This song um, is one of the ones that has that that Borneo brass section, the um, Lenny Pickett's brass section off of uh, his 80s work. So that's on here. It's very subtle. It never takes the forefront, which I appreciate. Um, and this one does have Christine Young on piano. Um, I think it's funny that the last time Pete Townsend showed up, was on scary monsters, yeah. right? Um, because you're yep. because you're young, and uh, showed up there, noodled about a little bit, in a terrible mood. <laughs> uh, he came back, you know, years later, and he knocked it out of the park. His his guitar riffage is fantastic. It it is such a injection of life into this this song. It's not that it, not that it was a boring song. Otherwise, I'm just saying, it just it just takes it to a great, a great level. Um, and it is a fun song, even though it's kind of dismal, um, lyrically. He's talking about, you know, uh, 
here we shall live in this terrible town. The price of our minds shall squeeze them tight like a fist. And the walls have eyes and the doors have ears. He's going back to Diamond Dogs lyrics um, like uh, surveillance, mind control. Um, this was predating the Patriot Act, but that would come very soon. Um, <clears throat> fear overhead, fear overground, turning us round and round. And here we are at the center of it all, which I thought was interesting because he uses that line in the song Black Star. That's right. That's right. Quite a bit. And it's all it's almost like and I know this probably was not intentional, but even on the next day, he had this character that was almost like an overlord, like this, this really evil overlord character that he would do on next day. He did it on Black Star. And it's all I almost wonder if there's some sort of connection where it's like the social anxieties that the world felt would kind of give way to this like mad leader character that he would end up coming up with. Um, I don't know, just spitballing here. Uh, but I, I like the lyrics a lot. It is dismal. It is a lot about um, this is the first really overtly 2001 kind of lyrical content. Just a lot of the the, the fears that were going on at the time. Um, so, uh, but yeah, all in all, it's a fun song. It rocks. You can't help but stomp your foot to it. Uh, great little track. Part of this song that really uh, gets my goose is uh, that, oh, these are the days, these are the strangest of all. And then a horn goes, Mwap! and then it goes, these are the nights, these are the darkest to fall. And then the same horn goes, Mwap! these are the strangest of all. Yeah, uh, I, don't I, know did, if you guys I know exactly, exactly what, what you're talking about. Talking. Yes, <laughs> that part always gets me. Um, yes, yeah. let yeah. me pick it. Yeah, I think it's a great track. It's got a great bass line. Just kind of walks through the whole song. Um, just, uh, it takes you from the start to the finish. Just walks you through. Uh, that uh, I think it's a great track. It's it's perfectly placed. Uh, you just you're you're so tired from the catharsis of the last track, and this one picks you up and slowly walks you to where you need to go. It's a good track. Some of Pete Townsend's work on this is a, dare I say, Fripp-esque. He does a little bit of a noodling that I approve of. Um, I approve of his noodling on this track more than he approves of some of his former band members based off what... Uh, oh, <laughs> he, made the news, he made the news this week. He basically said he's, he said he, he's glad the, the, the deceased Who members are actually deceased. He's glad they're he's glad they're dead. <laughs> you know, once you uh, once you're able to beat uh, being an accused pedophile in the news, you feel like you can get away with saying anything. So there you go. <laughs> oh man, it's true. All right, let's go to track five. No need to be afraid of just Americans. Let's call this song "Afraid." Wake up the ocean 
And that was Afraid. This has a another propulsive song that has just a really excellent string arrangement. This is another song that was supposed to be slated for the album The Toy. And boy, oh boy, the band is tight as a drum yet again. Um, Bowie's vocal performance isn't as confident, and I could tell that was a decision that he made because of the lyrical con- uh, uh, concept. It's supposed to be about a man who is essentially saying, I'm still so afraid on my own. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. This song works for me. I like it a lot. So far, I am really digging this album. I feel like as we're now in track five, I am absolutely subscribing to all of these songs, thinking like I was a little too premature saying the next day was his strongest latter day work so far. Eric, what do you think? Yeah, and I actually think I appreciate that the two lyrics you kind of pulled out of the song was afraid and alone because he goes back to those a lot in the hook. I won't feel afraid. I won't be afraid anymore. Afraid is he's uh, is alone. And I, you could almost see for Bowie based on some of his life experiences, you know, he would maybe equate the two things equally. Um, the lyrics in the most part are about conforming. You know, if I put my face in tomorrow, I believe we're not alone. I believe in the Beatles. You know, he's basically taught like, you know, pop music, medication, if I can talk on television, uh, he's basically saying if I if I can walk an empty mile, if I can basically play the part and smile, maybe I'll fit in better. Maybe I won't be alone. Maybe I won't be afraid. And that's really what the song's about. It's a it's conforming to beat that fear, um, which is very interesting. The song itself is kind of a uh, it's kind of a. Uh, happy i mean i'm not gonna say it's, it's it's clearly the lyrics aren't happy but it's a it's a happy sounding rock song it's it, it's uh it's very engaging and it's a lot of fun it's a brisk brisk little thing in the strings that's true they kick you in your ass i can really picture this being and i think um i texted this to you guys that uh this when i got to this track i was like is this bowie's version of the rising like from my recollection of the rising which is pretty damn good record um i could really see like bowie and uh bruce doing a little collaboration on this song i don't know i think it's because of just the um it's a very propulsive rock song with excellent strings steve but i think you're going to be the the person to either put a check on me or agree with me I do agree with you that this does this album parallels the rising quite well. I the the song that most reminds me of Bruce Springsteen is not this one though. It'll come later. But I do see where you're going with this track. Um this has that uh lack of a better term, ironic positivity that uh ironic's not the word. I, I don't know. Like this is a, this is like a happy song, but it also is a sad song at the same time. It covers both the you know it, it's it's about a guy being very insecure. And towards the end of the song, you know, I can't tell if when he says I won't be afraid anymore, if he's like making a triumphant stand, or if he's saying you know oh no I took all the medications I need to help me not be afraid anymore, so I lost. I'm not sure. But the mysteries of the lyrics aside, 
this track might might be my favorite song in the album. It's definitely it's it's vying for it. Um, the song does a lot of things that I really enjoy. One of which is the string work reminds me of the Secret Chiefs to an extent. Western, it's very, you know, you're going over, you're riding a horse galloping from one that, the side of the the screen to the next, and I, I really enjoy that. And um, I also, I, I just, you know, I I think that the the bass work on this album is understated. It's it's pronounced, and you can you don't have to like search for it, but I never think it like goes less Claypool levels of insanity. But at the same time, you know, the, the, the bass line on the last track, I, I thought really walked me through the song. And on this one, there's some bass fills that just get my juices going. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but uh, there's some some moments where we'll, we'll, he will finish a verse and the bass line is still. It's just uh, it's, it's wonderful. Um I think it's a very great. I think is that is that a uh, Viscani on the song? Yeah, Tony Levin. Uh, Tony Levin was only playing the fretless bass on "Slip Away," so I think it was uh, Tony. Uh, or excuse me, Viscani. Well, there yeah. you go. Viscani. Uh, he 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 took the bass for a walk back in there again, and uh, yeah, this song is very soaring. I just I think it's a great track, and like Mark said, they're about yeah, what five five tracks in. And they haven't there. There's no missteps yet. Not only are there no missteps, they're all pretty above average songs so far. Uh, yeah. Right. And th- this track, uh, Eric, what was the one you were saying had the extended outro? That was uh, the the opening one. That was Sunday. Okay. This song, I really enjoy this song quite a bit. If I haven't already conveyed that, my only issue with it is the way it ends. It ends in a downbeat kind of, it kind of just, no, I won't be afraid. And that, that a uh, space synth kind of just trails off and the guitar kind of just strums slowly. This song to me is begging for a, uh, an extended outro where then the drums kick back in and they go through a few more uh, bits of the, of the, of the chorus. That's, I, I think it really could use that. And I went back and I looked online. I watched some live footage from from the time. And in my mind, I thought they did that. I thought they did an extended outro. They never did. When they played the song live, it's just like the album. So oh, well, that's because he's he's clearly still afraid. There you go. And you've helped me crack the code. Now I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> uh, top marks for me, man. I, I dig this track. The, another cover song on the album. I've been waiting for you. Oh 
for self-titled album. Did you guys listen to the Neil Young version? I did. I did. Pretty good. Like it, it is. It's a solid song. It is. For I'm that, not... I, I I feel like it was like '69, something like that. It was really kind of ahead of its time and sound. It was pretty fun. I think it might have been off of Neil Young's first solo record, but I'm pulling that out of my ass. No, you're so you I'm... are completely correct. No, you're okay. right. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, in my, in my head, I thought that whole thing was just going to be singer-songwriter style, but that is a full rock song. Yeah, it's a jam. It's, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, I, I actually kind of like this. There's a there uh, on the Pushing Ahead the Dame website. There's a there's a soundbite from Neil Young from 1973, where he says the uh, the '60s are definitely not with us anymore. The change into music of the '70s is starting to come with people like David Bowie and Lou Reed. They don't expect to live more than 30 years and they don't care. They don't care. They're in the 70s. And I'm trying to say is that these people like Lou Reed and David Bowie or Bowie, however you pronounce it, these folks, I think they got something there. Take a walk on the wild side. It's <laughs> not very, not a very profound. Was that from the, the the some kind of press release for his next record? If he's name dropping, you know, very odd. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, very odd. So this is a cover of the song off that. It's a uh, some of those early Neil Young love songs were almost a little obsessive in their they were they're like darkly obsessive. And this this song is no um, no different. I've been I've been looking for a woman to save my life, not to beg or borrow a woman with a feeling of losing once or twice. Who knows how it could be? I think I I could put it in the forgettable pile, if that if the I have been waiting for you the whole chorus part wasn't such a damn earworm, where it it rarely leaves my head. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty it's a pretty cool song. And Dave Grohl's playing guitar on it. Yep. Adding a little bit of extra oomph to it. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you. Um. The original is an absolute banger. Uh, David Bowie puts his little fingerprints on there. Um, Dave Grohl's guitar playing, you could definitely tell his style. Um, it's definitely in that kind of song structure that you would find on a Foo Fighters record. Um, the Pixies apparently also uh, covered this song at some point. Um, so it's been passed around a little bit. Um, and, of course, our boys in Tin Machine used to play this one as well but instead of david bowie singing it reeves would sing it oh yes off oy vey baby yes yes <laughs> which i did not i did not fall into that uh trap so i, I didn't do it right yeah uh, but i like it this song i do um i uh not much needs to be said about it i mean besides the fact that it's a good little rocking song um, it, the original is great. David Bowie made it, made it great too. So yeah, I like it. Steven. Yeah, this track, it, um, every time it starts, I kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, Oh God, are we doing this really? And then about 30 seconds into it, I'm into it. I get into it. Before I get a chance to skip it, it always hooks its it, it hooks in me, and I'm okay with it, which is kind of how I feel. Neil Young's had a career for decades now, so 
<laughs> every every time everybody decides they're probably tired of him, he he does a little you know a flourish and keeps us around. But um, he does he does mirror ball with old Pearl Jam. That's right. Definitely an an okay song. Uh, I nothing really jumps out of me that it makes me just incredibly want to sing his praises, but it's not bad. It's an okay cover. Yeah. Yeah. You should check out the original, Steve. It's it, it might be in your wheelhouse now that you're in a credence, uh, a credence zone. Please don't, please don't put John Fogarty and Neil Young on the same stage. It's a lot of flannel. That's a lot of flannel. Um, <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's completely fair. I think, I, I think it's, it, they, it's, it's it's no, it's fair. You know, uh, time wise and sound wise and uh, flannel wise, but John Fogerty only wrote, you know, like eighty great goddamn songs in four years. Neil Young's written maybe five songs in five decades that are worth listening to. He had some good stuff with <laughs> uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I don't know, like. Um, I do agree that John Fogarty and Credence uh, are definitely a, a hit factory. Um, there's no denying the what Credence can do, but Neil Young, I think he does like to veer in two different, too many different lanes, and he likes to experiment. Uh, he is certainly hit and miss. You can't really celebrate his entire uh, discography, um, but when he's got some classics, man, he's got some absolute classics. I do like myself some Neil Young. The the whole Greatest Hits collection is phenomenal, as uh, Adrian Veidt would say. Um, so open your mind, Stephen. Open your mind. <laughs> all right. I, all, all I meant was they both do – I would say they both do Southern rock for not actually being from the South, and they do it better than most Southern rock of the time, more soulful. Um, it was – you know, it was not meant to disparage anybody. I was, it was yeah. more like the song down by the yeah. river, um, by Neil Young is an absolute masterpiece. It is so good. Um, he does, and it's ahead of its time. I, I'm telling you down by the river. It's a good song. It's like, it could be about seven minutes long, but it's, it's a jam. Cinnamon girl, of course, done by your boys and typo negative. That was originally done by this man right here. So, so that's two. That's right. Uh, yeah. Two tracks. That's right. Uh, like a like a hurricane. Heart of gold. Like uh, this but this song's for you. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I, that later day Neil Young is uh, definitely filled with. Uh, oh, I mean, he's just a grumpy old man who's talking. Yeah. Hey, transform transformer man. Don't 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 knock it until you try. Yeah. It. The, the whole the whole trans album. The whole tr- where he goes uh, like electronic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but John, is that one? There's no. Uh, isn't that a concept album about electric, electric cars? I think so. It could be. I think it might be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've never heard Guys, that. Guys, let's, let's move. Let's, move, let's on. move on. Let's move on from this conversation. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Next track. I would be your slave. Stumbling 
All right. That was I Would Be Your Slave. And who doesn't love putting on an album from around the turn of the century and feeling like they're a slave to muddy MP3 Pro Tools production? I agree with you to a certain extent. Um, it took me a little bit to kind of get my my hooks into this. And I will say what you're talking about is definitely um, it, it might be more attributable to a later song on this album. But I do actually really like the the bass playing. I think that uh, the choruses are great. Um, I like the guitar plucking. It creates kind of a brittle melody. Um and the vocal performance kind of reminds me a little bit of Wild is the Wind. Um, I don't oh. I don't hate this song, um, but I do have to admit that it does tend to drag a little bit more than what we've heard already on the album. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think this song could be potentially something that if you give it another shot, you might be able to find a little bit of the, the hidden gems in here. I don't think it's a terrible song. It's not the worst song off the album. It's not my favorite, but I will say that it's not as bad as the kind of turn of the century production that it, it definitely kind of dips its toe a little too much into that pond. So I'll agree with you on that, but I do think there are some things that you can pluck out and say, that, okay, I see this, this might be something worth your time. Well, and I, and I don't know, maybe I think when it comes to production, maybe we're going to be just, it's just going to be a matter of taste at this point, because the production with the exception of one song that has not happened yet, the production on this album hasn't bothered me because, um, there were, you know, there was a movement in, in rock, especially like indie rock and stuff that Bowie was enjoying at the time. Um, it was like, it was using good production techniques to do lo-fi. And maybe that's Steve, what you're calling muddy. But to me, that's that gives it almost a timeless sound. Like this could have been made today. This could have been made in 2000, maybe even in the nineties. Um, I think Bowie tried to do in like cutting edge production techniques in the eighties. And it still turned out muddy. <laughs> This, I think he was trying to take the gloss out of it and just write some good songs and give it a lo-fi kind of sound. So I actually don't have any qualms with the production. And maybe, like I said, maybe it's just a matter of taste. Maybe I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about and you're actually correct, which would not be the first time that's happened. We've gone a few places on this album so far. You know, it's definitely old Bowie and it's old Bowie looking at his fears for the future, which will come up again it's old Bowie talking about uh, social anxiety and what that, how it's basically deteriorating the, you know, the morale of the country. And these things come to a head in this song, which he's revisiting his thoughts on God, like he did on station to station. He's basically saying like, open your heart to me, show me who you are and I would be your slave. He's basically saying like, okay, fine. I've been toying with this idea of God for so long. I would literally be a devout. I would, but you have to give me something and you are giving me nothing. There is nothing in this timeline that is showing me there is a God. You are not giving me anything. I cannot make that leap of faith anymore. And that's what this song's about. And I actually think that's a really relatable feeling, which, uh, which I really appreciate. And I really love that he throws some shade on that Christian, you know, it used to be a poster I, I know I've seen it in my like my cousin's house before. The, the, the when there was only two footprints, that's when I was carrying you. <laughs> I 
that whole one. You guys oh, know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, and he and he says like, I don't sit around and wait. I don't I, I don't give a damn about no footprints in the sand kind of thing. Uh, I just love that he's throwing a little shade on that shit. So um, as far as like getting older, seeing how the world works, and 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 making you question your faith, I think thematically it's gorgeous. Yeah, the, the lyrical content is fine. I do like the delivery of the open up your heart to me uh, passages. I, I just feel that it just sounds really clinky and muddy and just like, I'm just like, ah, did I, you know, the bit rate in this MP3 I downloaded sounds bad that this is not, he is not the only person that has committed this crime for albums that came out within like the first five years of 2000. But on this track, it just does the production just, and lo-fi is fine. Analog is fine. But when lo-fi sounds like the transmission of the song uh, from one recording device to the next took a hit, I it takes me out of it. And it really happens to me on this track, and it actually also happens to me on the next track. So, And speaking of which, should we go to the next track? Yes. All right. I took a trip on a Gemini spacecraft. was the legendary Stardust Cowboy. Legendary Stardust Cowboy uh, was a guy that I have to only assume back then you would have seen on like Dr. Demento's Comedy Hour. Well, he's been around a long time and I actually found it on my music streaming service. He's, uh, like I said, he's like a Dr. Demento staple. He's ridiculous. The music starts in it. It sounds like old... I'm not even going to say as cool as like Hank Williams, but like that era, but just like really bad, like uh, Will Rogers Follies, like country music. And he just kind of does this really strange delivery over it. Like I ride a tractor through all my crops and um, just a strange, a strange character. His name was Norman Carl Odom and uh, he was from Texas. Uh, and he kind of was doing a a take on country western, but it was very satirical. Uh, he knew what he was doing. Uh, anyways, Bowie gave him credit, and then he covered this song on this album. 
Um, and uh, at the time, right before this album dropped, uh, Bowie had been doing some tours, and I remember uh, I was looking in my research, uh, Pushing Head the Dame actually had this great story about what happened, where um, the, the legendary Stardust Cowboy showed up at the show, and lo and behold, there were backstage passes waiting for him. And this guy walked around, Norman, uh, legendary. He just walked around like, yep, like, that's right. Kiss the ring, basically. He was like, you owe me your career, <laughs> career essentially, kind of thing. Like, that was his attitude. And David Bowie was, you know, this is like the the, uh, the late 90s, early aughts. And he's, uh, Bowie's gushing and whatever. It was a funny moment. Um, and uh, later, Bowie got to curate the Meltdown Festival, and he made sure that this guy, legendary sports stardust cowboy, got to show up and do a set. And then he ended up making a fair amount of money off of the the royalties off Heathen for doing the song. So it was kind of one of those stories where a novelty artist falls on hard times and ends up doing pretty well because uh, he inspired um, some really damn decent people. So with that said, where do you land on on this song, on this cover? Uh, it's a it's a decent cover. It could have fit on any of the albums leading up to this. Honestly, it's got like a little drum and bass background thing. It's got um, lyrics that would definitely fit. Just about it's it it's crossing between like the inappropriate sexual lyrics and then just feeling alone and like a love song in space. It would totally fit on any Bowie album. Um, this is way better than the original. Like I I should say like legendary Stardust Cowboy. Like he just talks through this song. It's supposed to be kind of a laugh. Sure. He's having a laugh, so to speak. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're all having a laugh. No, I say it's actually a song. He's singing through it. It's fine. It's fun. I don't. I don't even know. I, I wouldn't even consider this a low point on the album. Uh, but it's nowhere near my favorite. Um, I, I kind of just more like the backstory about uh, Bowie giving respect to this ridiculous. Uh, and I think essentially that's why this uh, has a place on this record. I don't hate it. I I do think that what Bowie is trying to do, it's, it's certainly tongue in cheek. Um, that drum and bass, uh, that was found predominantly on the earthling album certainly makes a return. Um, but I do have to give it, uh, some credit. The string arrangements are pretty fantastic. Uh, the saxophone work is also really strong. Um, my only problem is the song meanders around for just 
a while and I can't get it out of my head. And I think it's probably the croaky, the little froggy uh, delivery of, well, it really reminds me of like if this song and the cures wrong number were both made on the same factory floor, but this is just that song slowed way down. Um, it just, I don't know what it is. And I think it's because Robert Smith uh, on some of those uh, later cure songs does a little froggy vocal work. Uh, you know, he's obviously got a very distinct vocal presence on the cure songs, but that it, it just really reminds me of something that could be potentially on one of the cure songs. I don't hate it, but I don't really feel like it's a strong, um, everything around this, this album so far has been pretty serious. And then this song comes in and kind of goofs it around up a little bit. Um, I don't think it's misplaced, but if you kind of just look at the overall tone of the record, uh, it just seems to be out of place in that sense, but I could understand why Bowie decided to include it on this record because he wanted to obviously pay homage. Legendary Stardust Cowboy would have been floating in the stars like Uncle Floyd, but Bowie, but Bowie Bowie brought him back, you know, with this song. He 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 gave us, you know, he let us all believe in this person who we never knew existed, and uh, gave him gave him you know gave him life one more time. I, I so. see that connection, but just with Slip Away um, musically and how it's sweeping in the vocal delivery. I mean, even though it just it's it's more. Um, pining for nostalgia this is more you know kind of kind of silly it is silly like you said yeah oh he said he, sh- he shoots his space gun yeah yeah and thinks of you i shot my space gun and thinks yeah no it's totally i'm not saying it's anywhere near the same level of of quality i'm just saying thematically this is nostalgia for bowie also and he's 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 bringing some legitimacy to it but it's um it's not, yeah, it's not even in my top half of this album at all. So. Now, the best thing that's ever come out of this song is this discussion that reminded me of the Cure song, Wrong Number, which I have not thought of in ages. That's a, that song is, that song's a good time. I like that song. That song's great. Uh, yeah, no, it's just, it doesn't do a lot for me. Like this, this song and the last track are my low points in the album. They could have removed this song off the album and I would have been completely fine with it. It's just... It just doesn't sound appealing to my ear. I understand the homage and the nostalgia factor, but you know, that the, the 20 minutes it took Eric to tell us why we should care about this song doesn't mean it sounds good to me. It's uh, it's just there. Yeah. Get out and, you know, yeah. we can move on. Let's, so. then let's do it. Uh, the next track is 515, The Angels Have Gone. Changing trains, this little town. 
track leaves off um i feel like the opening track uh introduces this vibe we get from this record and a lot of the other tracks kind of dance around that vibe but this song to me sounds like it picks up directly where it leaves off with that sleepy the uh, next day after feel i mean i guess you know 5 15 a.m might be what's happening here where people are waking up the next morning and they're trying to figure out what's what's going on I, I, I don't know. A, I do like this song. I don't entirely understand what it might be trying to say, but I, I think it's a good sequel to the opening track. I think this might be my favorite song on the album. I, it's 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 strange. This uh, there is not a lot going on in the song. Um, what I really like is the background music is so subtle, but it changes so much, and it's a little jazzy. At times, it reminds me of some stuff he's doing off of the outside, and sometimes it reminds me of some stuff he's doing off Black Star. Um, it's got some of his best vocal delivery, in my opinion. Um, and it's just this really strange, cold song about um, feeling estranged from God. This is like continuing. Uh, this is continuing off of what he was talking about in uh, the uh, the the slave for you song uh was it been called i would be your slave it's kind of continuing off that themes and now he's estranged from god this is like if if you look at this song is not a concept album at all but there are a lot of themes that end up coalescing into a man losing his faith and that is a big part of this album and this is a this is part of that and these angels um that the song talks about these people that uh, for whatever reason inspired him, gave him more faith during these times, they all leave on the 515 train. They all disappear. Um, and uh, it just feels like that. It feels like you're freezing, you're shivering at a train station at 515 in the morning. Um, and uh, funny enough, apparently this song, there's two songs on this album that are kind of, or no, this song, I'm I'm sorry. This song plays into his angel trilogy um, where his first song, I don't remember what it was. His second song was the title, the title track off the uh, Omicron, (laughs) the nomad soul. And then this was the conclusion. Apparently he's got three songs about angels and this is the last one, but I, I, I really like this song. It's very low key. It's almost trip hoppy at times. Um, I just get sucked into the the atmosphere of the song. Anyways, I'm into um, 
So I do also like this song. Uh, I like it for Bowie's vocal performance and the the drumming. I don't know if that's Sterling Campbell or Matt Chamberlain, uh, but big fan of the drum work on this song. And I think uh, Bowie did a VH1 Storytellers. And um, for whatever reason, I think in the introduction, he said, this song kind of makes me feel emotional for whatever reason. And... Uh, 515, it's a song written by Pete Townsend uh, for, it was in Quadrophenia. And I think David Bowie was trying to make a little tribute to the Who song. Um, He presented this visual impression of the decay of the U.S., apparently, uh, with a little, and the whole uh, 515 song is about, um, because Quadrophenia is also a concept album that the Who did. Uh, it's about a train journey down to Brighton. Uh, Jimmy, who's the main character in Quadrophenia, he's sandwiched between two city gents. Um, and so with the train being overdue and 515, it's the 515 train, apparently. And a uh, little homage to that particular song. But... I personally haven't heard that song and not a big who fan by that matter, but I will say big fan of the drum work. Uh, let me just interject really. all out counselor. Oh, I was just going inter- to interject on that. Uh, yeah. On that quadrophenia comment. Um, the pushing ahead, the Dame site made a connection that the way he describes the angels as being like these mop top long legged people. Like in this song, the angels are mod are mods. And the mods are leaving the station, so like that's kind of the connect the connection there because Quadrophenia is obviously all, all about the mod yeah. movement at the yeah. time. So, anyways, just kind of a cool, cool, cool. Connection. Oh no, that go, was all pretty on. much I was going to say. I don't mind the song; it is kind of a sleepy number, but that drum work of how um, just pronounced they are, and uh, yeah, I kind of I kind of see what you're saying that it has a little more of a trip hop element to it, um, and it's a good song. Moving on, coming up towards the last home stretch. The next track is Everyone Says Hi. Said you sailed away. Didn't know the right thing to say. I'd love to get a letter. Like to know what's what Hope the weather's good And it's not too hot For you Everyone says hi Everyone says hi Everyone says don't stay in a sad place Where they don't care how you are Everyone says hi This is one of my favorite songs on the album. It's uh, ridiculously upbeat. I feel that, you know, often on this podcast, I've said that when I think of this album, Reality New Extent, the next day, I am often reminded of like uh, positivity and upbeat songs with a certain type of uh, production that is very open, that lets everything breathe. 
and I feel that everyone says hi is probably the template for that. And I might be painting with a broad brush when I say that about these records. But for everybody says hi, I definitely think it think it applies, but not to the point to where it's like uh, too syrupy. I, I think it gets its, its, its point across quite well, and it has a message that everybody should hear sometimes, which where he literally says, uh, "What is it? Uh, you know, don't 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 go to a bad place where people don't care how you feel." Basically, he repeats something to that effect, and I think that's important because in this day and age. We often punish ourselves with the outside world quite often and forget that, hey, maybe I shouldn't have to eat shit all the time. And I think this song does a good job reminding you of that. And I am a big fan of it. It seems to go hand in hand with um, Bruce Springsteen's Long Walk Home off Magic. Not off The Rising, a song off Magic. And that song talks about appreciating where you grew up and finding uh, finding the, the, the quality and in, in a good neighbor if you will too you know it says that you know it, it try to play it's easier said than done but if you can be in a place where the people around you are positive influences it's not the worst thing in the world and i like that message i am a big fan of the song i think i think you're uh there's a lot of different ways to take the song and i think that you took it a very positive way. There's also a really darkly funny way to take the song. And I I guess it's up to interpretation. Well, most thing Eric Newslash, most things are. Continue. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh music I, at first I thought I thought I didn't like the song. The music it musically and production wise in my opinion it's the least interesting. It is. It was produced by the guys that did believe. Shares believe. Um, you know, they they got studio musicians from Jamiroquai on this song. It's like, it uh, just not my cup of tea. But have you seen that Jamir? Have you seen that Jamiroquai video where they're walking on the ceiling and shit? Yes, yes, yes. I have. I have. I there's obviously something to love about all all of this. But the song itself, in my opinion, is actually it's actually pretty sad. But the music, I think it's done on purpose. The music is supposed to sound happy. It's supposed to sound poppy because there's this other thing under the surface. And what you have here is you have verses about dealing with somebody who's died. You know, it's basically like you've taken that trip 
Bowie has said in the past that when his dad died, for a while, he just in his head thought like, put his coat on, put his hat on, and took a trip and never came back. Went out and got smokes and never came back. But no, he died. Like, it's about somebody taking a trip. In fact, there's a really funny line where he's like, I hope it's not too hot for you. Like, I hope you didn't go to hell. (laughs) Kind of of thing. Um, And then the choruses are the people from the afterlife saying like, if money's lousy, you can come home. Uh, We can do things. We can do all the good things, the bad things. You know, Uh, you can come home. Basically, (laughs) yeah, I'm here. Your mom and dad are here. Your big fat dog's here. Come on. Like, like, uh, like death is peace and life is hell. And it's kind of darkly funny that way. Um, That's the way I read it, which may be more revealing about about me. I don't know. Um, So for me, I don't like how this song sounds, but as a dark comedy, I appreciate that the music's so happy and poppy and the lyrics are so, so dark. And that's that's my opinion. So in that vein, um, a couple things. This is the song that has uh, Carlos Alomar uh, guest appearing. But this song for me, um, I, I'm kind of more on Steve's camp that the the pop sensibilities don't bother me about the kind of upbeat upbeatness of it all it really does remind me of again i'm looking at through the prism of post 9 11 where new york and just people in general were like extra friendly to one another like everyone's saying hi to one another everyone's making eye contact with one another checking in on each other uh during that time in order to try to like work through the shit um it, it so the whole thing of everyone says hi even though there is some sort of, I guess, cynical darkness kind of lurking beneath. But I think that I, I, I just tend to go towards the everyone says hi part, like in the girl next door and the guy upstairs, everyone's saying hi and your mom and dad and your big fat dog. Like everyone is just trying to force that smile on their face to just let them, everyone know that, Hey, we're all in this together. Even though, it has nothing to do with 9-11. It's just one of those things that just kind of reminds me. I can absolutely see a montage of uh, kind of what they did in Watchmen about 11-2. It's safe to come back. You know, there's not even crime here. It it, it kind of reminded me of that uh, thing in post 9-11 where George W. Bush is saying, just go out there and go shopping. You know, everything's going to be all right. And with that said... Um, for whatever reason, I can also picture once again Robert Smith singing the song. I, it, it it sounds like a yeah. later day Cure song, um, where it uh, has that same sort of arrangement and that style. Um, that I could absolutely see this fitting on uh, one of those, you know, wild mood swing albums. But anyways, I actually like this song. It's fine. I don't think it's a terrible song by any means. I don't think I don't think it's terrible either. I, I I I think the way it sounds is one of my least favorite songs in the album. But what it's saying, and once again, I took a completely different thing that the, the uh, different direction than you guys took on what the song was about. And I really appreciate what I think he was trying to say. But I you know I thought you I heard you took a big trip. <laughs> something about that cracks me up. Uh, that the way he delivers that that big trip. And then at the end, at the end, like the last line of the song is, 
it's not part of the verse or chorus. It's kind of just like a shouted and like, you know, and a big fat dog. I'm like, what? He's making a list. But, uh, yeah. And, and also Eric did touch on these, but the, uh, the, the doo-wop, the wop wadoos that are behind like the second chorus or some such, uh, those are very entertaining and remind me of some of the, uh, you know, scary monsters was a total artistic masterwork that even though it was avant-garde all over the place, he would still pepper in some fifties vocal stylings. So I, I like that he, he does that here. Yes. All right. On to a better future with the song, a better future. favorite song off the record um it it just does interest for me and what's interesting and we'll talk about it on the b-side episode so i won't really um show my cards yet but um bowie's vocal performance is just for me boring um i know that he does have a little bit of a soaring thing um that happens in the uh uh i think in the chorus but the kind of Christmas lights turning on sort of synthesizers. Um, it's, I don't know. This song is just kind of flat for me. So this is my, actually my least favorite song off the record. Uh, this is like directly related to the, um, I'd be a slave for you song where it's basically like, uh, if you can't promise me that my kids are going to not suffer more than I did, the why, why are we even entertaining this idea of God? Like, look at this future that 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 this the current generation has laid out for our our next generation um anyways it's something i think about from time to time uh i maybe i'm going in a weird place with this route i think this this record is dark and maybe at times if you think about it too much depressing but i think it it sounds much more fun than that implies so uh i love a good fun depressing uh, album and I feel like this is his shaking his fist at God song. He's like, you know, you know what? What? Why would? Why would a, I share faith with anybody when this is the future that's before us? Kind of thing. And um, in two thousand and one, there were some definite things to be worried about. I mean, at this point, you know, Bowie was an American through and through. George W. Bush was president. Even if nine eleven hadn't happened yet. Um, there were some very strange things going on. And uh, anyways, 
I appreciate that. Uh, I like his delivery on the chorus. I love his acoustic guitar work. We talk about that from time to time when he really wants to slash on the acoustic guitar and just rip it up. He was doing that all over this song, which I appreciate. Um, it is that being said, it's, it is not in my top half of the album. It's not super engaging. I just really identify with what the song's about and the choruses keep me hooked until the end. So I don't ever really consider the song boring, but, um, I see what you're saying, Mark. I do agree. I do like the lyrical content. Um, so I will give you that. I just think that the execution was it just for my taste, it came off across a little flat, but I will say, and I'll just say this and I'm not really going to get into it. The remix by air breathed life into this song for me. So I'll just say that for now. That'll be fun to talk about on our next B side. Yeah. Yeah. The song's all right. It's just, you know, it's just kind of there. Um, I, I mean, the, my favorite part of it is that at one point, he kind of does a woo, like a, a woohoo. This sounds like it's from DuckTales. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the vocalization is pretty powerful at times, but it doesn't make up for the rest of the song being lackluster. I, yeah. Yeah. It's just the, I might just stop wanting you. I might just stop needing you. That's the stuff that I'm like, Okay, Bowie. I mean, I, I don't know. It just seems that he's telegraphing his vocals. The chorus is, I, that's, it just, it seems to be just in that register most of the song. It's true. He's not, he's not wailing. Um, he does use some of the most noisy guitar work on the hooks of this song, which I appreciate. Just really just fuzzy distortion. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm okay with a, uh, with a half-ass song. Uh, he's exhausted. He's exhausted. He's exhausted. And he's, he's terrified for his children. <laughs> Whatever. Next track. Heathen. The Rays. Looking for someone. of this song and I like that this song is uh, has kind of an am- ambiguous vibe to it 
and uh, this, this album so far has been pretty rocking has been pretty reflective been pretty I, I don't know yeah it doesn't in particular call back to like one era of Bowie too much even though the the, the press releases would have said you know a return to forms and scary monsters it doesn't sound like a lot like scary monsters but this track I really like the closing track in this album. Definitely, to me, sounds like it could have been plucked from the Low Trilogy. What do you guys think? I uh, n- uh, Yes, absolutely. That lives in that neighborhood uh, with the uh, kind of contemplative, um, the imagery that comes into mind because when the drums kind of uh, pitter-patter in. Um, yeah, it's, that, it's that constant, like, it's not, like a, it's not like, a, like a kick drum per se, but it's a constant drum beat that's yeah. just there. And also, the song kind of fades in and fades out, like you're stumbling into the middle of a, a soundscape that you don't really know where it begins or ends. I, yeah. I, I just, I, and, and even on top of that, there's all these like icy synths buried in the mix as well. A lot of it just, some of it sounds like low to me, and then uh, about two thirds of the way through the song, the drum beat kicks up a bit. And it kind of has like a a, a swaying uh, seesaw beat to it that reminds me of Lodger. It's just very low trilogy to me. I think it's a very interesting way to close this album. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, you nailed the sound. No, you you nailed the sound exactly. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to add a little bit uh, to that. Like the ambient synth, um, it does really feel like the sun is is coming out a little bit. And um, the imagery that I get is someone walking away from someone else into the sunset <laughs> as they're walking away. It's a good little closer. I think this is a perfect closer for this record. And it seems to harken back a little bit to um, the sound we heard on Sunday um, with things kind of twinkling in. This one here is just letting it shine in. Um, I don't know. It's a good song. Uh, it definitely does a full circle uh, soundscape for me. Um, and I think you nailed kind of the characteristics of what we're hearing. Eric, what do, what do you think about it? Yeah, no, it's it's perfect. It's uh, you. You're exactly right about how it sounds. I just love if you look at where the album starts, starts on Sunday and it ends with Heathen the Rays, and all of the imagery is about the sun here as well. Um, and you have all these fears about modern life, these fears about the apocalypse, these fears, fears about the future, and somebody losing their faith. And that is what this album is about. Primarily, that's what I believe. Um, and in this song, it kind of all comes to a head. Looking for someone, is there no reason? Have I stared too long? Well, what happens when you stare at the sun too long? You go blind. If you're looking for God um, and you believe fully, uh, you could be blind to some things. There's the ignorance that comes with that. Um, uh, You say you'll leave me when the sun is low and the rays high. I see it now. I can feel it die. So if his faith dies, what's a dead star, right? It's a black star. That's what they call that. Anyways, it's just some of the imagery that he's setting up for the future. Maybe not intentionally. Maybe it was just a really great line at the time that inspired him later in life when he made Black Star. But uh, it's just kind of that darkness that opens up when uh, 
your anxieties about the future yeah, cause you to lose faith. It's, I don't know, it's a beautiful closer, thematically ties everything up in a nice little bow and sets sets up his songwriting yeah. for the future. Yeah. Yeah, the last, you know, you, you, you'll say you'll love me and when the sun is low and the rays are high, I can see it now. I can feel it die. Yeah, it's uh, something. Yes. Yeah, he actually, yeah. um, he actually wrote this song uh, uh, during the start of putting this album together. Apparently, he just he was in the studio by himself at like five in the morning, and just the lyrics and the the the, the template for the song just spilled out of him. He was by himself and it just just came out. He had the melody and he had the lyrics and. There you go. He was, he was just struck with inspiration the uh, first thing in the morning. Yeah. Apparently when my reading, uh, Tony and whoever else was in the studio, like they would sleep in, they'd wake up, they'd work out, they'd take their shower and around 1030, they'd show up in the studio and Bowie would already have like five hours worth of material done. Yeah. In their little mountain studio thing. But. Well, that's it, folks. Uh, that was the album. Yeah. So let's hear our individual rankings. Steven, how many lightning bolts would you give this bad boy? Sitting here wishing on a cement floor just wishing that I had just something you wore. I put it on when I go lonely. Will you take off your dress and send it to me? I would give it a solid, actually, this can't be solid, a 3.75. All right. So, I was going to say four, but. Those damn, those damn muddy production songs, of which there are three, that uh, the legendary Stardust Cowboy and uh, the the second to last track, and then the one before the legendary Stardust Cowboy, they just they, they bring it down a little bit, but it's still a great record. I am a big fan of it. I'm gonna give it a four out of five. Four out of five bolts. Uh, if I, if it was based on focus on theme and lyrics alone it would be five out of five it's just losing a point for songs that are totally fine and enjoyable just not as engaging with my favorite track still being 515 i don't know why that song does it for me that's a good song it is it's a really uh would that you'd say that's your favorite song off the record then i, w- I would say so yeah. so i'm uh Probably the highest one, uh, 4.5 bolts for me. Um, I think this is just a very strong record, even at its lowest points, um, which aren't that low in comparison to some of the really low points that we've seen in some of his career. Um, oh, yeah. It, it's, it's a strong record all the way through. It's an easy record to just listen to in one fell swoop. Um, even the longer songs don't feel long. Um, they really do move along at a brisk pace, even though they're not exactly the the most propulsive songs and fast songs. My favorite song on here, um, it would either be Slip Away or Slow Burn. Um, Slow Burn is definitely just a really catchy rock song, um, but there's a lot going on in that Slip Away song that, uh, you know, it seems to be the 
even though it's about you know a a kid's TV show host, it's just it it's very powerful in terms of the nostalgia. Not so much. It's about so much more. Oh, it and, is. Uh, it is that that. Yeah. And honestly, like five times throughout this process, I was sure that was my favorite song too. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's 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 good. Stephen, what was your favorite song off the record? I don't know if we caught that. No, my my favorite track would probably be "Slip Away," or uh, Eric's favorite. Everybody says hi. Yeah, yeah. No, ah, I thought your favorite was "Afraid." You're right, Eric. Yes, you are. So I I will fix that total uh, contradiction in post. (laughs) (laughs) All right, boys. So next episode, we will be talking about some of the supplemental tracks that were found during this era. We're not going to go into the toy, but we will certainly be talking about the toy as we go through some of these bonus tracks. But we're going to go ahead and right now um, roll the dice to see where we're headed next. So Eric... We have 14 albums left to go, B. What's uh what's uh 7? Seven? 7 is Pinups. There we go. That's where we're at next. Okay. <laughs> I can hear you two complain about the man of Amsterdam all over again. Great. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently there was supposed to be a pinups two that was never actually recorded, but it was something Bowie wanted to do that. He was always compiling a list that was going to be released in the later half of his career. Um, so I think it's only appropriate that we now listen to pinups one. All right. All right. All righty, fellas. Well, this has been the fine young gentleman known as Mark Steven Eric, the beast with three backs. We hope that we brought you closer to pod. <laughs> <laughs>